he was so fat. <laughs> you see how fat he was? I don't care what I brought in this house. He just eat it up. I don't care what it was I brought in here. I bring some Popeye's chicken. That boy eat the whole thing. Before I even get a chance to get me a bite of the chicken, he just eat it He would eat his little ass off. You ain't never seen nobody eat like He would eat candy. Gumballs. He made me take him over, over up there to the Super Kmart. And he put them quarters in that gumball machine. Yeah. He had to wait till he get the red gumball. He had to get he always had to get the red gum. You sound like a character, I guess. Get that red gum off, and he just eat all that red gum. I was really good. I was good. I was really good. I didn't want to be fat like that. I did not want my baby to be fat like that because I know a black man in America, you can't be like that. I try to. <laughs> Recess is probably one of the most exciting parts of being in elementary school. It's usually a time for kids to let loose a little bit and play. But taking away recess time is often used as punishment. Class was too noisy, didn't do your homework, then no recess for you. This has some parents furious, saying that the punishment doesn't actually help improve the child's behavior. And in places like Minnesota, some parents are advocating for change at the legislative level. Marin Christensen Hofer is one of those parents, and she joins us now from Minneapolis to tell us more. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Your 11-year-old son was punished at one point while in school by having his recess taken away. Can you tell us about, like, what happened with that? Um, my son is autistic. You know, he does have some struggles with keeping his body still and sometimes in the classroom or just kind of blurting out some words maybe at a time when the teacher would like the class to remain quiet. So we suspect that may have been what was going on, but to be honest, we don't really recall um, I will say that it did happen on more than one occasion. How did it affect your son to to not get recess? Well, he described feeling sort of depressed about it. He felt that it certainly didn't help him to improve his behavior. Um, and it made him feel sort of singled out as if he were the bad kid who did something wrong. And so did you talk to your teachers and did they have any response to to you raising concerns about it? Absolutely. And, you know, we did have a good conversation about it at that point in time. But the thing that I think really led me to act further is just how pervasive it was in other schools across Minnesota. Um, I run a support group for parents of autistic children, and I did a very informal poll. And 50% of those parents reported that their child had had recess withheld at some point in time. And of course, you know, one of our major concerns is that this recess detention, like most forms of uh, punishment are used disproportionately against kids of color, kids with disabilities, and especially kids with intersecting identities. Some people listening may think, okay, if a child does something or is quote-unquote acting up, then what's the harm in just, you know, keeping them from recess? Why is it a, a big deal? 
We know that recess is a really important part of a kid's day. It gives them that unstructured time. It gives them that opportunity to just release and run and use their energy. It also provides a really important opportunity for social interaction. And it also gives kids that time away from adult demands. And, you know, there's tons of research that tells us kids do better in school when they have that recess. So if we're taking away that opportunity from them, we're really just kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. I know like like when I think of my son, he he doesn't like to sit down. You know, you'll talk or even my my middle child, like I might talk to her and she'll do a cartwheel out of nowhere. Like this is the way yeah, they express their constant- Yeah, they're constantly moving. So how, okay, if a kid won't stop talking, how do you get them to practice not talking? Yeah, well, I think you give them opportunities to talk and let them know, you know, these are the times when that's okay and make sure that they have those plenty of breaks. You know, like, let's save this conversation for lunchtime or let's save this conversation for recess time. But teaching them those skills and modeling those skills, I think, is the really important thing. And so you've been working with other advocates to draft bills. Can you tell us about those efforts and, and are you facing a lot of pushback? So the language that we have today directs schools not to withhold recess unless a very narrow set of conditions are met, such as, you know, imminent harm to a student or a teacher. It provides an opportunity or requirement for parental notification when a recess is withheld. And then it also has that reporting requirement so that schools are required to document that and make that information available to the public. And so that gives the parent the ability to know what is happening with their child. And it also would presumably give people the ability to see how often this particular punishment is being used. Absolutely. We can't solve the problem if we don't have transparency to how often it's happening. It is something that's happened for decades and nobody's really asked the tough questions about, does this actually work? And of course, you know, the science tells us the exact opposite. It doesn't. Um, and it often does more harm than good and makes it more difficult for children to comply with adult demands. So we really, you know, are grateful to have this conversation and to really give our teachers some tools in their toolkits that actually work for both them and for our kids. Marin Christensen Hofer joining us from Minnesota. Thank you so much for being with us. It is my pleasure. Thank you. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. Dollar Store Fair. Buying food in dollar stores is an easy way to save money. Unless your purchase is tainted by toxins, heavy metals, or other poisons that harm the brain. Be especially wary of imported candies and tinned meats. Lead and microbes can leach into them from their containers, and these dangers won't be acknowledged on the label. Imported pottery, too, can have high levels of lead. Such purchases might be better obtained from discount outlets that carry U.S.-regulated goods. Join with friends and neighbors to buy economically in bulk at a big-box store instead where you are less likely to encounter unregulated foreign fare. Discount stores Dollar Tree and Dollar General are thriving. Both chains saw their stock price rise after they delivered optimistic earnings reports this week. So does this reveal anything about the broader economy? Willie Shee is here to find out. He is a professor at Harvard Business School. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. Okay, so Dollar Tree and Dollar General are up. Walmart and Target are doing a little bit worse than expected. What's that say? 
Well, I think it says that a lot of people in this country are feeling the effects of inflation and they are looking for lower prices. And when you're looking for lower prices, that's one of the places you go, especially a place like Dollar Tree where you now know that everything costs $1.25. So if I'm trying to save money, that's probably a good place to go. I guess we should just try to rank things here. Walmart, of course, advertises itself as a place for cheap goods. The dollar stores are like the next notch down in, in bargain hunting. Is that right? Well, some people would call it trading down. Actually, uh, they're really a convenience store. The key thing is their price points are lower. Now, often that means you have smaller package sizes as well. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, and you know, unfortunately, many people in this country are that way, uh, you know, and you're feeling pressure in terms of how much it costs to fill up the car with gas, maybe I'm only going to buy what I need right now. Oftentimes, it'll be a smaller package. Let's figure out what's squeezing people, because, of course, this is a period of time where unemployment is quite low, wages are going up, but, of course, there's inflation and a lot of people are out of the workforce. What exactly is making the budget tight for people? Well, I think uh, food and fuel are the two big ones. We're seeing uh, big increases in uh, uh, prices of meat, poultry, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, and then, of course, at the gas pump. I was in a gas station uh, the other day, and I saw somebody who could not afford to fill up the tank on his pickup truck. He could only f uh, fill it up part way. Hmm. I heard him talking to uh, a friend who was with him. And uh, so, you know, with those types of big expenses... Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the household budgets. Do you think there are people shopping at dollar stores who would not have thought of themselves a few years ago as the kind of person who would shop at a dollar store? Well, back in the 2008-2009 downturn, we saw a similar effect where when people are uh, kind of stretched, feeling a little pressed, they'll uh, trade down, if you will, and uh, go to the dollar store. That, that, that's part of it. Uh, the other thing is we've seen a lot of growth in uh, both of these chains, particularly Dollar General, where they've really become uh, the convenience store in rural America, right? So uh, in near my house in New Hampshire, there are four Dollar Generals, for example, hmm. within a 10-mile radius, right? So they're also a convenience store, and when people know I can go there to pick up some milk or maybe I need some dish detergent or some laundry detergent, uh, and I know it's going to be a low price. So it, it's uh, something that we've seen in previous downturns. I'm amazed by the statistic that's in front of me here. It says there are more dollar generals in the United States than McDonald's. So how profitable is that business selling things at low prices? Well, obviously, it's pretty good. Uh, I, I think uh, McDonald's has been growing as well lately, but, you know, to have that many uh, dollar stores nearby, it really says something about their strategy, which is to fill in maybe lesser served or underserved communities uh, in rural America. So particularly in the case of Dollar General, you've seen that they are pervasive across the countryside, and it's been a very good business for them. You know, you alluded to this a moment ago. The base price at a dollar store, a dollar tree, for example, is a dollar twenty-five, not a dollar. Here we are in a period of inflation. Are they going to have to become the two-dollar store? Well, I hope not. You know, one of the things that when you had a one-dollar price point, it kind of limited what they could sell. Now, when they raised the the price point to a dollar twenty-five, that had an immediate. Uh, boost to their uh, uh, bottom line because they were selling a lot of things that they formerly sold for a dollar. 
But when you go up in the price point, then it in increases the number of things that you can sell, and that gives people more reason to come into the store. Hmm. Willie Shee, thanks for your insights. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. He's a professor at Harvard Business School. It's a massive irony for all the world to see. It's the nation's capital. It's Washington, D.C. It's the nation's capital. It's the nation's capital. It's the nation's capital. Washington, D.C. It's the capital. Got you feeling capital. The punishment is capital. The latest trial stemming from the violent January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol is underway in Washington, D.C. The defendant is a man named Timothy Hale Cusinelli. He's a former Army reservist who worked as a security guard at a Navy base. Prosecutors say he's also a Nazi sympathizer who fantasized about a second civil war. Today, he testified in his own defense, and NPR's Tom Dreisbach joins us now from the courthouse. Hey, Tom. Hey, Elsa. So what exactly is Hale Cusinelli accused of doing on January 6th? Well, both the prosecution and defense in this case say that Hale Cusinelli went from his job at that naval weapons station in New Jersey, drove down to Washington, D.C. after he worked the night shift, and he went inside the Capitol in one of the first waves of rioters to breach the building. You can see him on video walking around the Capitol for about 40 minutes, waving a flag at one point, waving at other rioters to join him inside the building. Now, he's not accused of assaulting police or damage damaging property in the Capitol building, but he has conceded, I should not have been there. So the most serious charge, though, he's facing is that he intentionally stormed the Capitol in order to disrupt the electoral college count that was happening in Congress that day. The defense says he did not have that goal. They say he got up, caught up in groupthink. Groupthink. OK, well, how did prosecutors try to make their case? Well, prosecutors have cited a lot of evidence that Hale Cusinelli has extreme views. We saw text messages where he used slurs against gay people, Jewish people, black people, including the N-word several times. He said those things in the context sometimes of his belief that Joe Biden was controlled by, quote, Jewish interests and that Biden stole the 2020 election. We also saw video where he yelled at Capitol Police that the revolution will be televised. Now, a key piece of testimony was from Hale Cusinelli's former roommate and friend at the base. He's a Navy medic, a black man, and he testified under a pseudonym because the government said he now feared for his safety. After January 6th, investigators got this roommate to wear a wire and ask Hale Cusinelli about what he did on January 6th. And in that taped conversation... Hale Cusinelli said no one had a plan to storm the Capitol, but he was enthusiastic about what he had done. He talked about his belief that a civil war was coming, about how it would give the country a clean slate. And prosecutors portrayed that as evidence that Hale Cusinelli wanted to overthrow the government, essentially. Hmm. OK, well, let's go to the defense. As we mentioned, Hale Cusinelli testified in his own defense. What exactly did he say about all this? Well, he acknowledged that he has said horrific things, and he said he did that to get attention and to shock people, and that he constantly exaggerated. He described himself as a, quote, nihilistic millennial. Now, I've actually been following this case for more than a year, and today, for the first time in court, he said on the stand that he was actually half Jewish and half Puerto Rican, and his slurs were sometimes self-deprecating to get attention. 
Though I should say that prosecutors wanted to introduce more evidence about his alleged white supremacist ideology, statements. The judge would not allow it in this case. In any case, he watched the Trump speech and went to the Capitol because Trump said that's where people were headed. Hale Cusinelli said it was wrong to enter the building. He recognized that. But he said he did not intend to disrupt Congress because he claimed he did not know that Congress met at the Capitol building. Huh. How did that argument go over? Well, he acknowledged that it sounded, quote, idiotic and that it was embarrassing to admit. His own lawyer said Hale Cusinelli was not especially complicated in his thoughts. And even though he was 30 years old, his lawyer said he acted like, quote, a child having a temper tantrum. Prosecutors really pushed back on it. They said this idea defied common sense. This man studied American history in college. He texted friends about the electoral college counting process. In any case, the jury will have to decide which story sounds more credible. The case goes to them tomorrow. That is NPR's Tom Dreisbach at the Federal District Courthouse in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, Elsa. But you're a nigger, and a lawyer is no realistic goal for a nigger. But why, Mr. Ostrowski? I get the best grades in class. I got voted class president. I want to be a lawyer. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled today that state prisoners have no constitutional right to present new evidence in federal court to support their claims that they weren't properly represented at trial. The vote was six to three along ideological lines. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. In 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that when a state court substantially interferes with a defendant's constitutional right to be represented by counsel, the defendant with a new lawyer may seek an evidentiary hearing in federal court to show that he was denied his right to effective counsel. Back then, the majority was 7-2, to with Justice Clarence Thomas in dissent. Today, Thomas wrote the majority decision, hollowing out that 2012 ruling on behalf of the court's new six-justice conservative supermajority. He said that federal courts may not hear new evidence obtained after conviction that shows how deficient the trial or appellate court lawyers were in state court. To allow such evidence to be presented in federal court, he said, quote, encourages prisoners to sandbag state courts, depriving the states of the finality that is essential to both the retributive and deterrent function of the criminal law. Writing for the three dissenters, Justice Sonia Sotomayor called the decision perverse and illogical. The Sixth Amendment guarantees criminal defendants the right to effective assistance of counsel at trial, she said. Today, however, the court hamstrings the federal court's authority to safeguard that right. University of Michigan law professor Leah Littman sums up the decision this way. So basically, you can have a federal court hear the claim. You just can't present any evidence to support that claim because Congress greatly restricted the availability of evidentiary hearings. Christina Swarns is executive director of the Innocence Project. This opinion leaves innocent people in the nightmarish position of having no court to go to for justice. She points to one of the cases before the court as illustrative. Barry Jones was sentenced to death for the brutal sexual assault and killing of a four-year-old girl. But his court-appointed trial lawyer didn't investigate the facts of the case. Arizona law does not allow the first post-conviction appeal to raise the question of ineffective assistance of counsel. And on the second appeal, the lawyer didn't raise the question either. 
Only when federal public defenders were brought into the case for a federal court hearing did they examine the medical evidence and consult experts who later testified that the injuries inflicted on the child occurred not when the prosecution claimed, but at a time when Jones was nowhere near the child and could not have inflicted them. The federal judge hearing the case found that both the defense lawyer at trial and the appellate lawyer after that had provided ineffective assistance of counsel. As Swarns of the Innocent Project sees things, Arizona has not raised the pay scale for court-appointed lawyers in some 30 years. They have inadequate resources, and the courts often waive the lawyer qualification requirement in order to get lawyers in the door to represent those who cannot afford a lawyer on appeal. We know at the Innocence Project, based on 30 years of representing uh, innocent people who have been wrongfully convicted, that ineffective assistance of counsel is one of the leading causes of wrongful conviction in this country. For defendant Jones, his only recourse now is an appeal to the governor of Arizona for clemency. He's run the course of his appeals and come up short. So, too, will many others. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. Well, Haiti is on the list of what's supposed to be. Haiti, the people call, who are called Haitians, predominantly are people who are classified as non-white, but they're not supposed to ever have anything under the system of white supremacy except punishment <laughs> yeah. for being arrogant enough under Tucson to think that you, with your military skills, can take us over or tell us what to do. So many a, a historian has said that the reason Haiti is in the shape that it's in now and sort of like the head wagon people of the world, you might say, mm-hmm. everybody kind of looks on them with great pity. It's because the white supremacists made that decision. The island nation of Haiti often makes headlines in the midst of crisis, but there's less attention paid to the factors underlying its status as the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere and one of the most unstable. The New York Times has conducted an unprecedented investigation into those root causes and is putting a harsh spotlight on Haiti's former colonizer, France. My colleague Ali Rogan has more. To learn more about this sweeping investigation, I'm joined by Catherine Porter. She's the Toronto bureau chief of the New York Times, and she's been covering Haiti since its devastating 2010 earthquake and led the team that poured over centuries-old documents and archives for this story. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, How did your team come up with this idea? Well, uh, as you mentioned, I've been in Haiti since 2010, and I think I've been back more than 30 times. And any journalist that spends any time in Haiti ask the question, like, why is it like this? Why is the poverty so bad? Why is the infrastructure so bad? And why is it so so much worse than other countries around it? And the obvious answer is often given as corruption, which is true. But reading a book on one of my trips there, it mentioned this thing called the independence debt that Haiti had paid to France after winning its independence had, had then been forced to pay in cash. And it just stirred my, like, I just, it's planted a seed way back then. And I started looking for more and more information about this. Yeah, and let's talk about how that independence debt came to be. Because I think, as, as some people know, Haiti was founded by former slaves. They overthrew their French colonial rulers in 1804. But not long after that, they ended up paying France. Why? 
Yeah, I, they called it reparations, which is so mind-boggling now. Um, 25 years, 1825, 21 years after the first black nation of the Americas was formed, a battalion of French ships arrived with a message from the king, basically saying, either you give us money or prepare for war. And at that time, Haiti been, had been completely frozen out. Um, America, the United States would not deal with it. Britain wouldn't acknowledge it. So um, facing war and desperate for international recognition, the president of Haiti at the time agreed. Right, and you've dove into um, how much those so-called reparations would equal in today's money. You also looked into the value that was lost to the Haitian economy because of so much of this money and the interest on these payments going out of the Haitian economy, not going to Haitians. So, so tell us about those figures. After we did all that research, we collected the, the figures and we were able to extrapolate what the opportunity cost was to Haiti. So if Haiti hadn't grown, if its economy had stayed as stagnant as it had been throughout the 1800s, it would have meant, it would have added 21 billion US dollars to the economy today. If the economy of Haiti had been boosted and grown at the same rate as the average rate of Latin American countries around it, it would have been a staggering $115 billion. Of course, the United States also has a long and sordid history with Haiti. What did you find out about that relationship? Well, you know, what was really interesting is that first you had these French colonial masters, and they held a tight grip on Haiti uh, long after independence. Um, and finally, you know, the the way that they held on to the financial strings of the country was through the, the Haitian National Bank. And soon enough, um, American banks took an interest in the Haitian National Bank because, as we saw increasingly, more and more bankers from around the world saw that this was a place that, despite how poor it was, they they could get rich. So we discovered that one of the reasons the United States, you know, uh, invaded Haiti and occupied it for a very long time, starting in 1917, was because a bank that is now known as Citigroup had really prodded the State Department to go in um, and secure its interests in the Haitian National Bank. And that then quickly developed into a full-fledged occupation. So part of the impetus was financial interests of Wall Street bankers. Catherine Porter with The New York Times, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Who are you? I am the architect. The biggest international prize in architecture, the Pritzker Prize, will be awarded tomorrow in London. It is going to an architect known for his work on buildings that address social needs, particularly in African countries. This year's prize also makes history as Francis Carré becomes the first African and the first black architect to earn the honor. Jeffrey Brown has the story for our arts and culture series, Canvas. A primary school built in 2001, the first in the village of Gando, in the West African nation of Burkina Faso. Its very existence, plus its use of local materials, natural light and ventilation, have made it a game-changer for its community, for the field of architecture, and for its designer, Jibedo Francis Carré, who'd had to leave his home here at age seven to attend school in a nearby town. Going to school is still a big, big dream for millions of young people in Africa, you know. This is still a big dream. And so, uh, you know, I was very, very lucky. 
and I felt privileged to be able to attend school education. What do you do if you're privileged like I am to be one of the very first from my community to attend school education? So I went back trying to build a school for the other kids. So that was how I started my career. That career, after a scholarship later allowed Carey to study in Germany, where he continues to work, has now won him the Pritzker Prize, architecture's highest honor. But he's never forgotten the experience of sitting in dark, stifling classrooms as a child. You had very tiny little openings, and you had no light inside the classroom, while outside you had the bright sun. So I wanted to create a school to, in my village, to allow other kids to stay in the village and be able to attend education. Education is so important for human development. But I wanted to have better classrooms. I wanted to have well-ventilated classrooms. I wanted to have bright classrooms. I wanted people to feel happy going to school. Last year, a New York Times survey named the school he designed in Gando as one of the 25 most significant works of post-war architecture. And Carre, now 56, has continued to define and refine an architecture of social purpose. Schools, housing, healthcare centers, and more. Mostly in Africa, always working with limited resources and using simple materials such as wood and clay. Carre often works closely with community members, at times including them in the building and even helping raise funds for projects through a foundation he first created to help build a school in Gando. This doesn't sound like the normal activities for an architect. Yes, that, yeah, this is right. It was not easy. It was not the normal way. I needed to create this structure in order to raise the needed money to be able to build a school. And, and we succeeded, honestly. And it was good. You know, it's a great experience. It, for me, it was the best thing that I could do, you know. Why has it been so important to involve the community, even having them help build some of these buildings? Yeah, no, it's really important. It's about how do you transfer knowledge. If you build a school and you have the community be involved, there is two things that are happening. First of all, you are, you are getting the community really become proud, the common sense. It is we, it is our school, and you know, they will protect it. So the second thing most important is knowledge. You are diffusing, you are transferring knowledge, and then you're making your community even stronger. At the end of the day, I am the one that gained a lot from that. I have a happy community that had a school, and I'm very happy. And, you know, I am giving even to talk to you, you know, to talk to you, Jeffrey. Can you imagine? Carey's firm designed the Serpentine Pavilion in London in 2017, and he's shown a whimsical side in so far limited work in the U.S. Colorful towers for a 2019 installation at the Coachella Music Festival. A structure called Xylem at the Tippett Rise Art Center in Fishtail, Montana. Among his recent or ongoing projects, the Benin National Parliament now under construction the Goethe Institute in Dakar, Senegal, a community playground soon to open in Kampala, Uganda, and in the design stage in Germany, a bridge in Mannheim, and a kindergarten in Munich. At the heart of every project, he says, are the people he's building for, especially in his home region. And I realized, wow, I have not just only created a structure, but I am changing the game, how people see things, you know? People in my place, they love the West. You don't know that. They love the West. They love your culture. 
you know, and they want to have it. But often we don't have educated people to get our people to benefit from all these achievements in science, you know, in design, in economic innovations. And I did with, with architecture, I did this for my people. How much does that translate to work that you do in Europe, in the U.S., in work that you will do? First of all, my work is transporting optimism. Um, it's looking how we can learn from past and to create something that is refreshing by applying material that are not causing a heavy burden to the environment. So these issues are not just for a poor a poor, you know, community. It is worldwide, you know. Another way in which this prize is important, Kare is the first African and first black architect to win the Pritzker in its 44-year history. It's just history, and I am part of it, so I am taking it. It's a great, great honor, a, a big privilege, if it can inspire others. But about the field of architecture, that is something we have to know. Studying architecture is very expensive, and... Uh, Access to any kind of education in Africa, where you have most black people living, is also not easy. And then there's the cost of building itself. But Kare believes that an increased focus on the kind of work he does can help change the larger field of architecture. In the moment, there are more elements that can contribute to architecture than in the past. The social component is being seen as something that is important. Climate issues is important. And so um, I am very happy that my work has become where this was uh, needed. But I, I wish that the world will create more schools in Africa so that we see in near future more inspiring examples from Africa. And I hope many of them will win Prisca, you know, for sure they will. <laughs> All right, Jebedo Francis Kere, congratulations again and thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, and I hope to see you soon. Thank you. I love that he says he wants his work to project optimism. Racist bullying on high school campuses is on the rise. The increase comes as more rural residents identify as multiracial, and their children are attending majority white schools that can be hostile. KQED's Julia McAvoy reports from one California high school where students of color are taking action. Jerry Loya is a junior at West County High School in Sebastopol, a mostly rural town of about 7,000. He says since he arrived as a freshman, he's had to deal with blatant racism on campus. One student called Loya her little Indian friend for months. I am not Indian, you know, I am black, Mexican, and Japanese. Loya says he was afraid to speak out at the time. You know, I didn't say anything because I was ashamed of where I was and I was scared and I didn't want any backlash. Loya's school is two-thirds white. 
The larger community here in Sonoma County is even wider. So if you think about it, they can all come against us, and that's, and that's a scary thing to think about. So Moya put up with it. So have others. I hear racial slurs against Mexicans, Asian Americans, the N-word, most commonly in the boys' restrooms and the hallways. Senior Dylan Peña Perez calls it normalized racism, and he says teachers aren't trained to step in, so they contribute to the problem. They don't speak up in class when they hear other students say racist stuff. Last month, things really blew up when a racist promposal from a white student hit Instagram and made the rounds in the community. Jerry Loya saw the post. It said, if I were Black, I'd be picking cotton, but I'm not, so I'm picking you. It's just blatant racism that she wasn't even trying to hide it. The racism at this high school isn't isolated. Recent data shows about a quarter of all students ages 12 to 18 saw hate words or symbols written in their schools. Things like homophobic slurs and references to lynching. At West County High, after the racist promposal went public, Principal Shauna Ferdinandson's office phones began ringing off the wall from people throughout the community. Everybody in every demographic of student showed up up in arms about what they were looking at. But the truth is, this school district has been failing minority students for years. The U.S. Department of Education's Office of Civil Rights took aim at the school in 2016, after another student of color complained of racist bullying. School officials did not do enough to stop the behavior. Ferdinandson had just come in as vice principal then. She says she fully complied with the settlement, building lessons about racism and empathy. She admits progress stalled during the pandemic, but insists she took quick action against the students behind the recent racist proposal. We had consequences around all of that. And we've told everyone that we are dealing with this. Student activists are not convinced. They organized a sit-in. About 300 students out of some 1,500 walked out of class wearing white t-shirts with anti-racist statements written in red ink. They are clear on what they want. Make ethnic studies a graduation requirement immediately and more severe consequences for racist behavior. Students began attending board meetings, calling out school leaders, and demanding the trustees remove historic plaques that were donated to the school in 1935 by a group that fought to keep ethnic minorities, especially Japanese Americans, out of California. One of the plaques is embedded in concrete at the entrance to the school. These plaques are hurting your students here on this campus. Katie Ann Nguyen is co-president of the newly formed Anti-Racist Student Committee. It is heartbreaking to me that the students even have to ask for the plaques as removal. Older Asian American community leaders showed up that night to stand with the students. How nice to see you. Yeah. You're very brave. Very pleased to see you taking an activist role. The school district voted to remove the historic plaques. Nguyen celebrated outside the building. It's been hard. And there's been a lot of pushback. But I am proud of the community here. Jerry Loya says that's great. And they need to be in this for the long haul. This is like a battle. This is a war. We have to keep fighting. The seniors graduating next month have already handed off their blueprint for activism. For NPR News, I'm Julia McAvoy in Sonoma County. Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Each successive generation uh, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. Doesn't mean 
we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends, and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country. Social media posts, which was meant as a prom invite for a student at Elisa Niguel High School. The post has angered many, including the parents of a biracial student at the school. NBC 4's Jonathan Gazella spoke with them and has more. The hard part is that no matter how much you prepare them, they're still not ready. You know, and that's the hard part. They're still not ready. Angela and her husband Mike also weren't ready when their daughter showed them this disturbing social media post last night. They say it shows their daughter's Aliso Niguel High School classmate holding this racist prom proposal, saying, if you went to prom with me, it would take my breath away, right next to a photo of George Floyd. We cropped out the two people in the photo because they are minors. I had a, a Black Lives fist up on it, and then I had a picture of George Floyd, and then at that point, I was like, are you serious? We're making this a joke. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> Just give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. Angela and her husband Mike also weren't ready when their daughter showed them this disturbing social media post last night. They say it shows their daughter's Aliso Niguel High School classmate holding this racist prom proposal, saying, if you went to prom with me, it would take my breath away right next to a photo of George Floyd. We cropped out the two people in the photo because they are minors. I had a, a Black Lives fist up on it, and then I had a picture of George Floyd, and then at that point, I was like, are you serious? We're making this a joke. Mike and Angela don't want their faces shown to protect their daughter's identity. Their daughter is biracial and also going to Elisa Niguel's prom this weekend, and they don't want the boy involved to be there. We really just don't want this kid around our daughter. And, you know, and plain and simple. You know, prom is like this huge event. They've already been robbed of two years of high school with, through COVID. And so to, the excitement that they had literally the day before for prom versus the excitement that they had last night or the, or the, the defeat that they had last night was heartbreaking. Angela and Mike say they notified Elisa Niguel leadership as well as some members of the school board and the Capistrano Unified School District. We reached out to the district and received this statement that reads in part, the sign is disgusting, lacks cultural sensitivity, and is deeply offensive, and does not reflect the values we strive for in our school district. We serve a diverse community, and we value all of our students and families. It continues, this is heartbreaking, and in instances such as this, we work with school leadership to address the situation. What got me this morning that I, when I was thinking about it was, it wasn't just the two kids in the picture. There was someone who took that picture and there were other people who were in that room that thought it was okay. Angela and Mike say they'll respect whatever decision the district and school come up with, but they also say their daughter has experienced racism on campus before, and they want some sort of justice to be served in this case. We all make dumb decisions in high school and college, but at the same time, it does need to be taught a lesson. It angers me. I was trying to explain to my daughter, like, there are certain hills that you have to be willing to die on, and her respect and dignity is one of them. Reporting in Elisa Viejo, Jonathan Gonzalez, NBC4 News. This the city of Chicago. Chicago.
The Illinois Public Health Department has long kept hidden the full picture of who gets an abortion in this state. Illinois doesn't reveal the race and ethnicity of patients. It's information that could help illuminate disparities and identify trends. There's a lot at stake. Illinois abortion providers are preparing for potentially tens of thousands more out-of-state patients if Roe v. Wade is overturned. WBEZ's Kristen Schorsch has been looking into this and is here to explain. Good morning, Kristen. Hi, Mary. Illinois is one of nearly two dozen states that do not disclose the race and ethnicity of patients who have an abortion. Why is this withheld? You know, it comes down to privacy for patients and their providers. All of this dates back to a different era in Illinois politics. You know, in the 1970s through the 90s, the Illinois legislature tried to heavily restrict abortion. And the ACLU of Illinois was regularly in court fighting back and won almost every case. They finally negotiated a deal in court with the Illinois Department of Public Health in the 1990s. It focused on privacy, like not not disclosing the identity of patients and their providers. And the state can collect data on who gets abortions in Illinois and can decide what to release to the public. And IDPH, the Illinois Department of Public Health, has never released data on race and ethnicity of abortion patients. But you found that it might not even still be legal for Illinois to keep portions of this data hidden. Yeah, during my reporting, I found that the restrictions at the Illinois Department of Public Health about the information it collects on abortion patients, like what can be disclosed and versus not to the public, it's tied to an old law no longer on the books. Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a new law in 2019 that protects abortion should Roe v. Wade be overturned. Under that new law, the executive director of the ACLU of Illinois told me she thinks the state now could, quote, hypothetically speaking, collect and publish more aggregate data about abortion patients. So I asked the Illinois Department of Public Health if this information should be made public. A spokesman told me they're looking into it. You know, the state wants to make sure they're being transparent while balancing privacy concerns. And why would it be important for the public to have access to this information? You know, even providers are split on this. You know, some of the benefits of knowing about the race and ethnicity of abortion patients is that this is how you find disparities, and that's how you steer resources to groups of people and communities that need them. For example, during COVID-19, you know, there was a big disparity in the race of patients who were getting vaccines. There, You know, at the beginning, they were going to more white residents, while Black and Latino Chicagoans were disproportionately getting sick and killed by the virus. So the city decided to flood, you know, 15 black and brown communities with vaccine to balance out those inequities. Also, this level of secrecy is not typical for a lot of public health data. There are still privacy concerns, though. What would be the argument for withholding this data from the public? You know, I had this conversation with a lot of people. One of them was Dr. Morgan Madison. She delivers babies in Chicago and and used to provide abortions. You know, she's fearful the data could be used to target groups of patients, you know, that it could be used to go after patients and their providers, especially as other states ban or further restrict abortion. There's like the the non-medical part of my brain who, you know, like lives in this world as a person of color. And because abortion is such like a polarizing topic that has so much stigma associated with it, my first thing is, could that data be misused? But... As a doctor, you know, she also told me that she sees the value in having the data to get at the root causes of inequities and address them. There's also this idea of feeding into stereotypes of who gets an abortion. You know, Illinois is preparing to treat tens of thousands more patients from out of state if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So there's a lot at stake. That's WBEZ's Kristen Schorsch. Thank you, Kristen. 
Sure. Thanks for having me. This is WBEZ. But he surely sensed the meaning of his violent act. It was an act that drew on a long history of bombs and arson and shots fired at churches. Not random, but as a means of control, a way to terrorize and oppress. An act that he imagined would incite fear and recrimination, violence and suspicion. An act that he presumed would deepen divisions that trace back to our nation's original sin. Oh, but God works in mysterious ways. God has different ideas. Former minor league baseball player Chris Singleton knows grief. His mother was murdered in a racist attack. He's since dedicated himself to stopping hate-based violence. He's now heading to Buffalo to support grieving families there. South Carolina Public Radio's Victoria Hansen has this report. Chris Singleton was scrolling through social media when he saw there had been another mass shooting at a grocery store in Buffalo. Typically, he'd look away. This kind of news can be personally upsetting. But the details of the massacre were frighteningly familiar. I was up all night. My wife was next to me telling me to go to sleep, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I wanted to figure out everything I could. What the 25-year-old wanted to figure out was why 10 black people had been killed. He kept scrolling and reading from his home near Charleston. A white gunman had unleashed a hail of bullets on a predominantly black neighborhood store. Witnesses said they'd seen the suspect the day before, perhaps casing the place. And the weapon, a military-style machine gun, was covered with racist messages and the names of white supremacists. When I'm seeing that, I'm making my stomach turn, especially when I see the name Dylan Roof on there and thinking, man, this guy was inspired by what happened to, to, you know, to my mom. Singleton's mother, Sharonda, was killed seven years ago next month by Dylan Roof. She was one of nine black parishioners murdered at Mother Emanuel AME Church because the gunman wanted to start a race war. Then 18, Singleton forgave the killer, explaining he would not let hate win over the love his mother, an ordained minister, preached. He has since traveled the nation, trying to stop racist massacres by sharing her story. My mom, the most beautiful soul you'll ever meet, was in church. And she was praying, y'all. And she was shot six times while she was praying. On this night, Singleton speaks to a Charleston crowd, just blocks from where his mother was killed. Yet he can't check what's happened nearly 900 miles away. How many other people are are thinking this kind of thing. It's scary, especially because I'm trying to stop this stuff from happening, and it's kind of demoralizing, honestly, you know, when it continues to happen. But Singleton says he won't let another racist attack shake his faith. He's now headed to Buffalo to speak with schools where children have lost family members. He remembers the confusion he felt as a college student, robbed of his mother and left to raise his two siblings. And so if I could just be of any support to him, Uh, Just sharing the things that have helped me out with realizing it's okay to cry. 
Singleton still hopes he can change even one misguided mind. By setting an example, as a black man who's lost a loved one to racism, but does not hate. He was supposed to visit Buffalo schools last year, but couldn't make it. The suspect would have still been in high school. Singleton worries he missed an opportunity. If he would have realized that everybody has a family and they're loved and we didn't choose the very thing that he hates us for, um, I hope it would change his heart. It's a message he shares during public talks. I need everybody to stand up. I need you to go find somebody that looks different than you and tell them that you love them. Listening to Singleton in Charleston, Emily Lichen admits she's overwhelmed by so much hate-fueled violence. I mean, we should be upset about it. We should be shook by it. But um, unfortunately, it's just becoming too, like, too regular. But she is inspired by Singleton's message. Also moved by the talk is Shanice Cleckley. If his spark can touch all these different sparks, think about how big the spark then turns into a flame. A flame that glows with empathy and blinds people to their differences. For NPR News, I'm Victoria Hansen in Charleston, South Carolina. See, I was like, Buffalo, New York. I'm like, okay, I, I know it's cold. Um, you know, O.J. Simpson, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, I get to go to the Knicks games and I get to go to see, you know, the Nets. I'm in New York, you know, and I got here and I'm like. We want to hear more about Buffalo, New York, where the mass shooting earlier this month took place. It is one of the most segregated cities in America. The east side, where the supermarket targeted by the shooter is located, is one of the poorer parts of town. And it's the black part of town. NPR's Alana Wise reports that the killings expose the city's barely concealed economic disparities. Tops, the grocery store the shooter targeted, is one of the only places for east side families to shop for food and essentials. But I want to tell you the truth about my home, the place that is so dear to my heart. Whitney Walker is Northeast Regional Director of Faith in Action, an interfaith group. And we've gone from the sixth to now being the fifth most segregated city in the nation. The statistics Walker cites are backed by years of research. The disparities extend to schools, transportation, employment, her words come to life as you walk the streets of East Buffalo, on Jefferson Ave, where police tape still signals the crime scene. When our elected officials want to express their surprise and their shock that a mass murderer came into our community, I can't be surprised. Residents say opportunity is hard to come by, and Tops was never a great grocery store. They describe higher prices than elsewhere in the city and shoddy products that would never be tolerated in whiter, more affluent neighborhoods. It's like a big 7-Eleven, basically. Erica Huffnagel says despite Topps vow to reopen, she doesn't think the store or other corporations actually want to be in Black neighborhoods. You know, I kept saying food desert, food desert, and, and someone had to remind me, like, desert is a naturally occurring thing. Like, what's going on? in your neighborhood is created. And, and it's true. They don't come here because they don't want to and they don't value the business. Neighborhood residents lobbied hard in the early 2000s to get a grocery store in the area. The Tops opened here in 2003. Huffnagel lives just over a mile away, walking distance. I'm trying not to get emotional because Saturday is when I do my shopping. What do I have to say about this except showing up? 
Rabbi Jonathan Freyrich says the conditions in this neighborhood where he doesn't live are a tragedy, not just for black people and not just for Buffalo. It is a national problem taking place here in Buffalo, and I'm a white guy. Freyrich points to the conditions at Tops prior to the shooting and questions why officials haven't gotten involved before to improve the city's predominantly black neighborhood. Where is the investment in our community so that we have a supermarket? A supermarket! And it's not even a good supermarket. Mm-hmm. This is not like the top tops in town. Mm-hmm. So let's invest. He's calling others in the so-called city of good neighbors to live up to its moniker. So if you're a white person and you're asking, what can I do? Listen, show up and be present. Be here for our people. We are in this together. This is a war. And Fryrick says this neighborhood is under attack. Alana Wise, NPR News, Buffalo. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that, we, that is brought to our attention, We need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it uh, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. The Challenger is a widely circulated black-owned newspaper in Buffalo. One of its journalists, Catherine Massey, was killed in the grocery store attack this month that left 10 people dead and three others wounded. NPR's Alana Wise has more. Leah Hamilton helps run the newspaper, a family business, alongside her sister and mother. Before the shooting, the Topps grocery store, just blocks away, was a major distribution center for the Free Weekly. Hamilton has since been handing out bundles of the paper, 16,000 printed each week by foot. We distribute like about 1,000 papers out of that one location between Thursday and Sunday. People ask for the Challenger by name. There are people who have never picked up a Challenger before that I'm sure are getting one. You're welcome. And then there are people who are relying on it that would come by the office and get them because they couldn't find them. Would you like a challenger? They comment on the front page portrait of the victims. Thank you. Oops, sorry. Have a good weekend. Thank you. You too. Oh, that's beautiful. 
This trip is Hamilton's first time venturing to the memorial that stands in front of Tops. Oh, wow. This, this is overwhelming. Here, flowers, balloons, and candles commemorate the lives lost. Hamilton describes Massey as the kind of journalist who held others to account, but she never let the tough topics harden her. You could feel her warmth coming through that phone because she wanted to make sure we got her article and, you know, just a real solid journalist. Hamilton said that one of Massey's main writing subjects was gun violence. It's just uncanny that her article about gun control and gun violence, and she was a victim of it, is just it's heart-wrenching. It tears me up. Hamilton talks about how important Cat was for the challenger, how important the challenger is for the community. Our name says it, the community news. So we tell the news, and the community tells the news, and we do this together. We are a unit. And one can't work without the other. Kat Massey took that message especially to heart. She insisted on being a subscriber, and she insisted on paying for her subscription. Because our writers, you know, we'll send them the paper, but she insisted. She's like, well, I want to make sure I pay. And you can always just feel her kindness and her warmth through the phone, you know. And it's just like, wow. And I was going through the subscriptions and putting the labels on the envelopes and her label came up. It was just, a. it was bigger than that moment. It was bigger than the actual thing. It was that family thing I'm talking about. That connection that you have to the people that support what you do. And she did. Kat Massey was laid to rest on Monday. Alana Wise, NPR News, Buffalo, New York. This question, why is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect. See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. (laughs) The Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. The mass shooting that killed 10 black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, has renewed the focus on white nationalists and racism as a growing threat to American life. It's also left officials and the public struggling with how to fight that threat. Buffalo, it turns out, is a place where activists have been working for years to do just that, by trying to use their influence as white people. NPR's Adrian Florido reports. When Aaron Heaney learned that the white gunmen in the grocery store massacre felt white people were threatened by the growth of the country's non-white population, it all sounded familiar. The the white replacement theory, I've heard less intense versions of that here in Buffalo my entire life. 
Heaney is national director of a group that mobilizes white people to support the fight for racial justice. She was born in Buffalo around the time its last steel plants were closing. For those of us who are white, we, we've grown up with these stories that it was communities of color, not you know people in power or policy decisions by elected officials that, that has caused so much suffering in our communities. The economic decline. Exactly. I mean, it's the story of Buffalo. <laughs> It's the story of many Rust Belt communities struggling to recover from deindustrialization. It's a story, Heaney says, that white nationalist groups know they can seize upon to make inroads in places like this. We drove to a white working-class suburb near Buffalo and took a walk. A couple of years ago, Heaney said, the Ku Klux Klan and other supremacist groups canvassed this and other nearby suburbs with flyers. Why are white nationalist groups flyering these neighborhoods? Because this is a majority white community, they assume that they can recruit and maybe uh, build more support in this community. Um, It's a place where, you know, folks are working hard, some folks are struggling, and, you know, people are trying to find a reason for why they're struggling. And a lot of these extremist groups think they have the answer to that. When they learned about this, Heaney's group, known as SURGE, short for Showing Up for Racial Justice, decided not to ignore it. The group did its own door-knocking, asking people how they felt about white supremacists coming into their neighborhoods. Some people were angry. You know, some people didn't want to engage at all, and some people were conflicted. And it was those people, the conflicted ones, that Surge knew they needed to focus on. White people who might not realize they're inching closer to white nationalist ideas drawn in by the internet or by family or by politicians or by right-wing media. People like Bridget Holbert. She lives in a rural community an hour north of Buffalo. And she says that until a few years ago, white nationalist ideas now entering the mainstream probably would have been an easy sell for her. What hit me like a Mack truck was how close to those ideas I already was. Holbert grew up in a conservative evangelical family in New York's Adirondack Mountains. Being raised evangelical, you know, persecution narratives are extremely powerful. It's me against the world. It's us against the world. You know, they hate us because of what we believe, but we are right. It's the same narrative for white supremacists and for evangelicals. That logic underpinned lots of the ideas that ran through her social circles, ideas she recognized in a more extreme form in the writings and ideologies allegedly posted online by the Buffalo shooter. We were taught that having lots of children and raising them with Christian values was the way to win the culture wars. Lots of white children. Lots of white children, yes. But I had no clue that it was based on whiteness. I had four children in order to help swing the population. With the rise of Donald Trump's 2016 candidacy, Holbert noticed the people around her grew less concerned about trying to veil their racism. When Philando Castile, a black school cafeteria manager, was shot by a Minnesota police officer, her friends shared memes justifying his killing. That was a turning point for Holbert. That was the moment that I went, dear God, this is hate. And this is hate that it's based on hating people because they're black. Soon after, she had her first contact with organizers from Surge. They drew her into the work of racial justice. A couple of years later, when there were rumors that the KKK was going to show up at a local peach festival near Buffalo, she showed up to protest. So did John Barrett. We were talking to people in the festival about what that meant to have white supremacists in your community. They, they did not want to hear it. We were making them uncomfortable. 
for lots of white folks, there's a powerful narrative that things like flyering or showing up at events by white nationalists, that the solution is to ignore them. Linnea Brett is a surge organizer and says this has been a huge challenge in their work against white nationalists. It's the opposite. When we're ignoring them, that gives them cover to continue to recruit and build power. The philosophy that Surge applies to its work across the country is that fighting white nationalism requires shaming and calling it out wherever it shows up. In 2017, they campaigned against the Buffalo sheriff's re-election after he refused to denounce people who waved Confederate flags during one of his speeches. And they disrupted local school board meetings, demanding the removal of a board member who made racist comments. This is the sort of organizing that black and brown people do all the time. Surge's director, Aaron Heaney, says white people do it less, but when they do, it's harder for other white people to dismiss them. And so we think it's really important that there are white people showing another way to be white that is not racist and white supremacist. They're in a battle, she says, for white people, because the far right has been pouring vast sums into winning them over to the belief that black and brown people are to blame for their problems. But how big of a difference can it make to fight that message door-to-door, face-to-face, when your opponents are massive media and political machines? It is an asymmetrical fight in terms of the resources pumped into the mainstreaming and the normalization of these ideas. Tarso Luis Ramos is executive director of Political Research Associates, a Boston-based research group that tracks white nationalism. But the work of white people committed to democracy, to equality and to racial justice, is not outmatched when it's on the streets, when it's in communities. Because white nationalists don't speak for white people in this country, at least not yet. It's something Surge's activists remind themselves of, organizer Linnea Brett says, when they feel overwhelmed by the fight. The work is emergent, it's slow. It's, it's easier and more comfortable to maybe believe that someone or something is coming to save us. It's a lot more terrifying to reckon with the fact that we have to save each other and ourselves. That means white people have to get off the sidelines, she says, to resist the tide of radicalization that drew in an 18-year-old white man and convinced him the answer was to kill 10 people because they were black. Adrian Florido, NPR News, Buffalo, New York. recurring nightmare has happened again. Texas state officials say a gunman killed 18 children and at least two adults, including one teacher at an elementary school today. It appears the 18-year-old shooter, Salvador Ramos, was killed by police. 
Gunfire broke out early this afternoon in the city of Uvalde. It's about 85 miles west of San Antonio. Heavily armed police swarmed the school with ambulances close behind. School staffers and others waited and watched. Having just returned from a trip to Asia, President Biden spoke tonight at the White House, trying to console families and calling for greater action. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done? I am sick and tired of it. We have to act. And don't tell me we can't have an impact on this carnage. And earlier today, Texas Governor Greg Abbott spoke in Abilene. When parents drop their kids off at school, they have every expectation to, to know that they're going to be able to pick their child up when that school day ends. And there are families who are in mourning right now, and the state of Texas is in mourning with them. As we learn more about this horrific event, I'm joined now by Taylor Petaway. She's a reporter at the San Antonio Express News, and she is following all of this very closely from San Antonio, which is about 85 miles east of Uvalde. Taylor, thank you so much for being here on this just uh, horrendous day for, for your community, for Texas, and for this entire country. I wonder if you could just tell us what is the latest that you have heard from law enforcement about this tragedy today? So right now, the latest that we're hearing is, unfortunately, the death toll has continued to climb um, ever since, you know, the first, the initial reports that we've gotten so far, like you said, we have 18 children dead, two, possibly three adults who have also perished in this. And, you know, just a community, a state and a country right now that's just in utter disbelief and heartbreak. Yeah, I can't imagine what the parents and the families in that community are, are going through today. We are talking about a, a massacre at an elementary school. So these are ostensibly children who are eight, nine, perhaps 10 years old. Is that correct? Is the, have, have officials said anything more about the children themselves? That is correct. Um, so Rob's elementary school is second, third, and fourth graders. So very young children. We know that some of the victims, you know, are as young as 10 years old, and it's just absolutely incredible in the worst way to, you know, have to witness something like this and and just watch as these parents and students and teachers have to deal with something like this. We understand that the shooter himself was not a stranger to this community. He was from the local area. Have we learned anything else about why, if there is any real reason why, he visited this horror on this particular school today? Unfortunately, we don't. Um, police haven't released any sort of motive, uh, if they even have one, unfortunately, in situations like this, especially with the shooter who is now deceased. You know, there's a great possibility that this is a question that we never get answered. Um, you know, we hope that one day that we'll know why this heinous act was committed, but you know, that we might not ever know. Can you tell us a little bit more for people who are not familiar with Uvalde, what kind of a community is this? Who are these families that are going through this unspeakable moment? 
Yeah. So Uvalde is just, it's a small town in Texas, um, you know, about 16,000 people. Rob's Elementary alone only has about 600 students. So it's a small, very close-knit area, you know, a lot of families, just a lot of roots held there. And so, you know, when something like this happens, it just absolutely cuts to the core of the community. I've been seeing reports that we heard from your governor earlier. We certainly heard what President Biden had to say about the need for greater action to try to address this. Your lieutenant governor and your attorney general both spoke earlier this evening and said, in their minds, the solution to this is hardening schools, limiting exits and entrances, and arming more teachers. Is that kind of a response going to be accepted at, at, in the moment of such a terrible tragedy? Are those kinds of responses from your reporting going to be tolerated by people? You know, it's really hard to, to say. I mean, I think as we've seen on multiple occasions with mass school shootings and just mass gen, uh, shootings in general in our country, often that's, you know, the very quick um, response right after a shooting. And I mean, here we still are. You know, I think a lot of schools and things have already started to do those measures where they've limited entrances and exits, where they've, you know, made people coming in, get visitors badges, where they are, you know, are metal detectors, things like that. Some counties in Texas are now arming their teachers. I mean, it gets to a point where how many more measures do you t can you take? I mean, what else is there left for us to do to try to protect, you know, our, the citizens of our state and of our country? That is certainly a question we're going to keep asking for a long time. Taylor Petaway from the San Antonio Express News, thank you so much for joining us. Of course, thank you. Meantime, veterans of law enforcement are weighing in now on the controversial actions taken by those police officers during the shooting. William Brangham has more on that. That's right. I mean, as, just, as we just heard from Amna, those officials are being harshly criticized for not acting sooner to confront the shooter and to potentially save some of those children, actions that they now admit were wrong. To help us better understand what police should and shouldn't do in these awful circumstances, I'm joined by Fred Fletcher. He's the retired police chief of Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he also spent many years as a police commander in Austin, Texas. Fred Fletcher, thanks for being here tonight. Um, you've heard the timeline that investigators have laid out. 19 armed police officers are in the school outside the rooms where that shooter is locked in two rooms with some young students. And there is this punishingly long wait before they go through that door and confront him. I mean, as a former police chief, as someone who has trained a lot of police officers, what is your reaction to this? I feel a great deal of... Uh grief and my heart breaks for Uvalde. And when I think of those 29 minutes in particular that lapsed between the officers stacking up outside that door, shots being fired, and them finally breaching the door, uh, that grief is compounded with a great deal of anger and some shame that we as a community have allowed this violence to continue on our children. I mean, the officials today said that the local commander on the scene felt that this was a barricade situation where the shooter was simply holed up on his own and, and that there wasn't a threat to others rather than an active shooter situation where there was a threat. What do you make of that distinction that they are making? 
I agree with Director McCraw. It was the wrong decision period, and there's no excuse for that. I can't say it better than Director McCraw did, that an active shooter has demonstrated they have no intention other than taking lives. And we know, certainly since Columbine in the late 90s, that active shooters are only going to stop when we intervene and we stop them. I mean, I as, know- As first responders, go ahead, Blaine. No, no, please, Fred, continue. I was just gonna say, we have an obligation to have a bias towards action. Police officers regularly run towards gunfire and we train an active shooter preparation to engage, 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 to draw the attention, emotion, energy, and fire from the shooter so that we put ourselves between violence and the neighbors we're sworn to protect. We have to have a bias towards action and those decisions need to be left to the men and women who are on the scene, who have the information, not to a commander who is off the scene and receiving delayed information. I mean, one of the most haunting aspects of this, uh, this horrendous circumstance is that we know that while those officers are outside the room, that there are children inside that room calling 911 saying, we can hear the police out there. Could you please tell them to come in? I mean, that, that seems that there's a tremendous breakdown in communication, that that was not relayed to those officers outside that room. Uh, clearly, there are many questions about communication and passing of information. That's why we need to train, empower, and trust the officers who are on the scene of the violence to make the decisions to protect our neighbors, that they need to know that they are empowered and they are supported in intervening and engaging and taking that bias towards action so that they can engage a, a shooter, a violent perpetrator, and keep them from harming our neighbors. You said that that should be the bias in, in all of police training. Is that what police officers are trained? If you go through active shooter training, is this a nationally understood issue that in those cases, you don't wait for backup, you don't wait for the SWAT team, that you have to act? Is that what they're taught? Absolutely. We're literally taught and we teach that whether there's one or 100 of you, you move to the sound of gunfire and you place yourself between violence and the innocents. That's our job. That's our fundamental obligation. It's the way we train and it's the way we deploy. And what if there are circumstances where there, we understand that there were a lot of wounded children in there. We also understand that police were trying to evacuate, or at least that's what they were telling parents that were being restrained outside, that there was evacuations going on as well. How are police supposed to prioritize those in the midst of these circumstances? Not an uncommon situation, William. Again, the bias is towards engaging the threat. You stop the threat because you have a perpetrator who has demonstrated a desire to kill as many people as possible. So the, the number one priority is always engaging the threat, intervening and eliminating the threat. Often you're able to do multiple things at once if you have enough resources. You can evacuate, you can stage, you can treat simultaneously. But in any active situation, a bias, an intent, a priority has to be given to finding, engaging, and eliminating that active violent threat to our neighbors. As you well know, as a former police chief, we are a nation that is awash in these 
high-powered, lightweight, very, very dangerous uh, semi-automatic rifles. Officers in, officers in that hallway had to know what they were up against. And this is not to try to excuse anything about their actions, but do you think that that concern, that they may be up against weaponry that is perhaps even more powerful than what many of them were themselves carrying, do you think that that factored into this as well? I think that if police officers are going to be deterred and intimidated by violent perpetrators carrying weapons of war, then we as a community should commit ourselves to doing something so that people can't kill our children with these weapons of war. I'm ashamed that we as a community, that our elected officials have sat on the sideline as children from Sandy Hook to today in Uvalde are killed by these weapons of war when we know there are common sense reforms supported by a majority of Americans that can have an impact on the availability of these weapons to kill our children. All right, that is former police chief Fred Fletcher. Thank you very much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, you will not understand so-called gun control if you do not understand white supremacy, racism. Indeed, Grandcester. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Today's date, Saturday, May 28, 2022. So I have been told, I guess before I even get started with anything so that I don't forget it, I'm not into all those holidays, Juneteenth, Groundhog Day, Memorial Day. Eh. Uh, it is a holiday weekend, so be mindful. Uh, that may mean sobriety checkpoints, especially if you live in an area with a high number of non-white people, uh, speed traps, enforcement officers on the highway, that sort of thing. More intoxicated drivers, all of that. Uh, if you're going to be out traveling, whatever it is, just be very alert. If you do not have to be on the plantation on Monday, make constructive use of your time and energy. But those uh, so-called holidays uh, can be dangerous, uh, if nothing more than increased consumption of alcohol. Uh, let's see. Compensatory call in. Dial in if you have thoughts, uh, any of the news reports that have uh, happened over the past seven days or so. Uh, if you have counter racist suggestions, questions, the number 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. That number again, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. few things before we get to our callers and even some of the folks who uh, wrote in. Uh, number one, the first segment that I started with today was uh, the report where they were talking about recess and I prefaced that with the segment from Monsters Ball um, just Karanji Calhoun did pass away 
mentioned that before, but not making light because uh, that's who they're talking about in that segment. And then he ended up passing away at a very young age. Uh, Karanji Calhoun uh, passing away. And this is not even passing away, but uh, Catherine Massey, one of the victims uh, at the East Buffalo Tops grocery store two weeks ago from this very day, Catherine Massey, we heard the report where they were talking about she wrote about gun violence. Buffalo Challenge, or it was the Buffalo Challenger, now the Com- Challenger Community News, uh, that she wrote about gun violence uh, and all of that. Again, if you don't understand white supremacy racism, you will not understand gun control, gun violence, all of that. Anywho, uh, she, one of the victims, talked about the importance of black journalists. Uh, we read the, the list, all 10 of the, the black people who died, uh, she being one of them. Uh, but I did not get the information that she wrote for the Buffalo Challenger. I think I saw that she wrote about gun violence, but I didn't know that this is the Buffalo Challenger. Like she wrote for them. It's like, oh my, and the Buffalo uh, Criterion. They have two different uh, black publications in Buffalo. Uh, I had been saying, I'd been in touch with uh, Leah Hamilton. They spoke with her. I felt like such a, oh my God, like I realized confirmation once again, Gus T. Renegade is a total heathen, like in every way a heathen. Um, I did not learn that Catherine Massey wrote specifically for the Buffalo Challenger until a few days later. I mean, it's been 14 days total. Uh, but I didn't learn that until a few days later. I'd been contacting Leah Hamilton, Buffalo Challenger, to try to get archived information about Joseph G. Christopher. It wasn't until, and I mean, I pestered and pestered and pestered. I think it was about the third or fourth time that I called uh, Miss Hamilton and she said, uh, oh, we're going to get on it. We're going to get it to you. We're going to get it to you. Uh, we just, you know, we've been really busy. We're trying to get the paper done. And blah, blah, blah. She said, you know, we're actually on Jefferson Avenue. It's like, oh my God. Like, whoa. She didn't even mention, you know, Catherine Massey and all the rest. I mean, why? And then that, the, the actual Tops East uh, Buffalo Tops grocery store that they would go there to physically give out papers to black residents in the area. Like, wow. Uh, I felt, and I told her on the phone, like, man, I had no idea to be right there. Cause she was saying it was difficult for them to even get Leah Hamilton. I'm talking about, it was difficult for them to get out. Cause they had all the police presence and everything is taped off and all the press is there and everything else. So it's just been, you know, I don't even know what word to use, but it's been all of that and more. Uh, and so I was just like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Like, Oh, I felt, you know, horrible. Then I felt worse once I found out about Catherine Massey. I was just like, I can't believe it. Like, oh, I've been pestering them to death to get these, you know, information. I'm all on the other side of the world uh, from them and pestering them about all this stuff. But Leah Hamilton said, you are not pestering. You are doing your duty. She didn't even tell me about Catherine Massey. She just said, Give me your email and I will get on it and get it to you. And she did. Challenger Community News. And thus far, they are the only press outlet that I have seen where they covered Peyton Gendron's terrorist attack correctly. 
this has happened before in East Buffalo. Challenger Community News. But I did feel like a total heathen, like, man, I'm not saying, well, the information is amazing uh, that they shared. And we'll have to go through all that as we go through the book club. But wow. Total heathen. Gus T. Renner, worthless Negro from Virginia. Exactly what I said. Moving forward, I have to make up for that, though. We might have to break our rule. If she wants to come on the program to, you know, talk about their work and Catherine uh, Massey's legacy, then we might have to break our rule and uh, do that. That'll compensate for me being such a <sighs> savage heathen. Yeah, yeah. Anywho, uh, Challenger Community News. I shared their report this week as well. We'll have more to hear from them to come. Next. Pause. The book club is mandatory for so many reasons. Joseph G. Christopher, important. She recognized they got me that material in the midst of all of that because they recognized the importance of Joseph G. Christopher. Book club is mandatory. <laughs> mandatory. Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. You have to listen to the archives, you have to listen to it live whatever but yeah make sure we are all listening Catherine Pelinero absolute Matt we haven't even got to the good part yeah you can put that in quotes yet let me let me read because it's not that we haven't even got to the part where Joseph G Christopher starts killing black males and cutting out their hearts yet we haven't even got to that yet notice I said plural this wasn't a one time thing like repeatedly go and hunt black males and I gotta get a trophy penis, heart, finger, something 1980s Buffalo and you didn't hear nothing about this the past two weeks now so everybody had two weeks even in the report that we heard today where they talk about Klan going to do this man the Buffalo Challenger they have reports from the 1980s when Joseph G. Christopher was killing black males somebody, Klan other white supremacists was littering the neighborhood with flyers that said get your coon hunting license 1980s buffalo mandatory for the book club we haven't even got to all that yet we haven't even got to all of that yet 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific thursday we've only done two sessions so you don't even have catching up to do if you have not been listening now, the teaser I will give you is twofold. This is why the book club is mandatory this time and guest for Monday. I've only found two books on the Joseph G. Christopher 22 caliber murders, 1980, 1980s uh, in Buffalo and the state of New York in total. They're both written by white people. That's important. You know, we'll get to that later. Uh, but one of them, Catherine Pelinero, white woman, reading that in the book club. The other, Matt Greida, white man, actually a white journalist who covered these events live time in Buffalo when they were happening in the 1980s. His book, Joey 22, he'll be on the program on Monday, so-called Memorial Day, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. So I'm reading a snippet from his book. So this is our double plug for Monday and why the book club is mandatory. I will also, before I give you the quick snippet. So 
I find it fascinating when I mentioned this case and we've had so many people say they didn't know and a few people said that they asked other relatives or what have you and a couple folks said that they did kind of remember even if they didn't have you know lots of details but they did remember especially some folks who lived in the New York State area but the vast majority of folks no information didn't know about it at all even a lot of people who lived in the New York area Uh, I think maybe I'll say more than three people has sent me a YouTube video, FBI Files on Joseph G. Christopher. A plus. Always appreciate folks sharing until untiljustice at gmail.com. I'm just it's significant to me. Everybody shared the exact same YouTube video. Now I did I haven't watched it, but I'm aware of this video. There are books, articles, podcasts like there is a lot of material and especially if you like dig if you go back to the 1980s like this was a widely covered case especially in the New York area like lots of material not anything on Netflix as I said not a whole lot on YouTube but there's a lot of material on this even black journalists all that YouTube stuff very superficial understanding of really any subject matter reading is superior far so to any of that viewing or what have you like that's like supplement I'd be willing to wager any amount of money that YouTube FBI files video does not have any of this information so this is Matt Greider's book Monday I mentioned Dr. Welsing already mentioned Dr. Welsing so this is chapter 4 I've killed Did you know I was a mass murderer in Buffalo? Joey asked his guard at asked his guard in the psychiatric ward of Fort Benning's Martin Academy Community Hospital in March 1981. Specialist Corwin said that as he was standing guard, Joey calmly awoke, lifted his head and with a distant smile began making statements about committing serious crimes. Officials had sent Joey to the hospital's B4 psychiatric ward watch after he tried to slice off his penis while imprisoned in the base stockade. Is that in the YouTube video? Skipping one paragraph. Joey had returned to Fort Benning late on January 2nd, 1981 after his Christmas break from basic training. He quickly became unraveled. Within his first weeks back, he stabbed a black fellow recruit in the chest with a paring knife. Private Leonard Coles, 25 of Danville, Virginia. I have been to Danville, my goodness. Uh, Private Cole was in the barracks minding his own business on January 18, 1981. When Joey lashed out, that's three days after Martin Luther King's holiday, by the way. According to later reports, Joey mistakenly thought he heard Coles, no relation to his Buffalo Hospital victim, call him a faggot. Coles managed to wrestle Joey to the barracks floor until others came to his aid and called for military police. Joey was locked up in Fort Benning stockade. Not long after his confinement, Joey made another attempt on a black prison guard. I'm skipping one paragraph. 
Private Corwin wasn't the only person Joey spoke to at Fort Benning between mid-January 1981 and his return to Buffalo. Captains Dorothy A. Anderson and Bernard G. Burgess, two of the psychiatric nurses who ministered to Joey in the base hospital, also took part in conversations. Burgess and Joey complained about how fellow soldiers were constantly taunting him about his masculinity. A March 6, 1981 nursing report made out by psychiatric staff detailed Joey's statements about regular harassment throughout his three and a half month long army career. I'm not usually bothered by things. Joey is quoted in that hospital report. But since I've been in the army, it seems as if everybody is trying to beat me down. I am a man. I don't like it when people insinuate that I am not a man. I will stop there, but there's a lot more I could quote. A lot more, <laughs> but Matt Greider, white man. Again, now, is any of that information in that FBI files video? Reading is astronomically more important than watching television like it's not even close the amount of detail I guess let me give you one more a bit of scale so the book that we're reading in the book club is 17 hours I already told you we haven't even got to the part where they start cutting out black males hearts and nobody knows about this right okay we haven't even got to that yet that book is 17 hours that YouTube FBI files video is not even one hour. Now, how much detail do we think they left out? Reading is astronomically more important than watching television. It's not even close. Dr. Welsing. Now, let's see. Uh, I'll give you a story. I can give you one story. I'll give you one story. Totally unrelated to the news clips, I think. So I got my hammock. I was on, I talked about my wish list, Amazon.com, Gusty Renegade. Much obliged for all the folks who have invested over the 13 plus years. So I got my hammock. When, even though this has been like the coldest spring ever. Uh, that I've had in Seattle like I think the weather for Memorial Day it may be above 60 degrees and it might not <laughs> like most of this month it has not been above 60 degrees it certainly hasn't been above 60 much above 60 degrees like it nibbled at 59 you know hinted at 60 that sort of thing but it has not been there very frequently so coldest spring ever basically but there have been a few days where it's at least been like 59 right at 60 sunny not rainy you could go to the beach with a hammock and enjoy Whew. that has been the greatest thing ever except I was there on Wednesday reading prepping for the book club and all the rest of it beautiful at Richmond Beach one of my favorite spots in Seattle. I'm there. Beautiful spot to watch the sunset. It's around 7-ish, even though the sun doesn't set here until about 8.30, closer to 9 this time of year. So uh, way long. I mean, you got a good hour of sun and you can watch and look for the whales and all that good stuff and just have a blast. So I'm sitting in the hammock. 
I had been watching Better Call Saul, Breaking Bad, folks recall. I'd been watching that on my laptop and uh, playing something on some sort of music. I don't even remember what it, what, it, what it was. There were a few other people around, not a whole lot of folks, not very crowded, just enjoying the evening. These two white girls come. They are not even 20. They come and they sit, I'm going to say 10 meters from where I'm sitting at. They sit down, they break out their phone, they're listening to music, which many people do. These, (laughs) no name calling, these suspected race soldiers, they come and they sit down and the first song they crank on is Flippin' Bob Marley, One Love. Like, I mean, you want to talk about something that I don't even know how to explain something that makes you even want to vomit uh, or become homicidal or lose all rational thought like. And it, I mean, t- I'm not advocating this. I'm not saying this is what to do or what have you at all. I'm t- I just told you <laughs> this is one of those things that really bothers me like this was up. Oh, this is totally unacceptable. I'm going to have to leave or they're going to have to leave. Now, I told you I was in my hammock chilling, had been there for at least two hours, loving it. They just got there, sat down. Bob, no disrespect to Bob Marley, but just that is any individual classified as white. Even whistling Bob Marley is totally insufferable. They crank up the one love. (laughs) So I'm immediately turning up my volume and now I'm like ah, this is just going to be if this has to be if folks saw Spike Lee do the right thing if this is going to be Radio Raheem battle well then let's ride uh, so I crank up my speaker now I'm looking like okay because yeah I'm not going to tolerate this at all and I'm trying to think like man it's hard to find a song that you could play that would really do justice and before I could even say that they switched they went from flipping Bob Marley to a change is gonna come. Make sure that I give you all the detail because they didn't even do the Sam Cook. A change gonna come. They broke out the Otis Redding. A change gonna come. That was like, oh man, like Neely Fuller. I'm not even playing music. That's why I say it. it's kind of hard to even pick. What exactly do you play? I should have had the clip. I forgot that I was going to do it. If I had done this accurately, I'd have to do it when we do the uh, archive. So you'll get it correctly. One of our listeners, I play this regularly. I was going to include it today. And there was a song. Oh, there was a spot to include it. I just got caught up in all the craziness. But there is a segment song I play. Boris Gardner. Every nigger is a star. The acoustic version. I have played that for years on the compensatory call and we had a listener. She said it sounds demonic. Now I didn't think that but I did remember her saying that she said I hate that song. It sounds demonic. Every nigger is a star. The acoustic version. That is what I played. That was my Radio Raheem. Let's ride. They left in 30 seconds. If that hadn't worked, I was just going to play Neely Fuller and Cal's episodes and maybe clear out the whole beach. But every nigger is a star. Boris Gardner, 30 seconds. 
And then I got to kick back and enjoy my hammock and the sunset. Otis Redding. Change gonk. It even took me a second to catch. Like, that is not... (sighs) Insufferable. Anywho. uh, So that was my hammock adventure for this week. One story for the day. Uh, the segment talk about insufferable the segment where they play or they reported on the white man suspected race soldier January 6th he's terrorized the capital and all that and he says I am half Jewish half Puerto Rican and his attorney says that he just got caught up in group think Jewish is not a racial classification. We just had this pointed out uh, within the last few days on the program. Sammy Davis Jr. is so-called Jewish. So what does that mean? Puerto Rican also is not a racial classification. So you have not said a thing. We're talking about are you classified as white? You could be so-called Jewish, so-called Puerto Rican and classified accepted as white. That is all we are concerned about, sir. Group and then the group of what group think? What is that? I do have a psych degree too, so I do I have heard that term before, but I mean really. No, sir, buddy, that's not gonna be the fence. We uh <laughs> you are gonna be held accountable, buddy, and you and everybody else in the group should be held accountable. We are in a system of white supremacy racism, so I wouldn't exactly be surprised if they come out with affluenza or, you know, anything else. They haven't prosecuted most of these whites, so he might get away with it too. And then he can come out and say, I'm, I'm, you know, what is it? Plunkito? That was the one that they told us before? Might do that on us. Who knows? Let's see. When so many of this was about words when they talked about the incident in Sonoma County where they had the they said the young uh, biracial so-called students are uh, fighting back against white supremacy racism uh, and they said that they would have racist incidents happen white students would say racist things nigra and all the rest of it and that the teachers are not trained on how to respond in my view, that is just further evidence and an indictment of the parents, I would say. That is not the issue at all. That's just the standard rhetoric. White people are ignorant. All the white people are ignorant. All the white people are dumb. We even heard that when they, did you get that? We had two different reports. I almost thought it was, it was, I was doing a double take or something like, whoa, am I having two different reports, two different schools where they send out prom invites with a racist joke. If I what do you say? If I was a nigger, I'd be picking cotton, but since I'm not, I'm picking you. <laughs> and that was good when you see the, <laughs> And then that's how I knew I'm not crazy. It was just two different prom. That's how we celebrate for prom. The other one was, hey, you take my breath away. And put George Floyd. And he said, put George Floyd with the black power fist. That's the end. Like, are you seeing like, is this like for reals? You want to go to the prom or you want to lynch me? Like, which 
What? <laughs> what? And for reals, sometimes, yes. Both. Jeffrey Dahmer. What does it mean to be white? You have to talk to your children. You have to talk to your children. And I mean, way, maybe years before we get to the point of conception. What is our counter racist code going to be? This is where we're packing our child and sending them up, sending them off to every day. Like for reals. That's why we're going to hop in bed and do all this to send our child off to this. Lots of conversation way. And so also, if we are going to do this, they're not going to be saying, yeah, they just need to be trained. We need to get some of that racial sensitivity. Can we get Jane Elliott to come and train our teachers so that they can stop calling me nigger in gym class? Pause. When they talked to those students in the rural classrooms, they said that they would hear nigger most often in the locker room and the bathroom. What? I mentioned Dr. Francis Cress was. Why would it get to those areas? You might be pulling out your genitals, having to disrobe, and now. Now we get to dealing with genitals and all the rest of it. Like, come on, come on. Like, uh, I don't know. You'll have to think about that one. But they, they did say that. That gave me great pause. Hmm. Dr. Wellesley even talked about that in terms of how big is it? Can I say all those comparisons and saying that a lot of it starts at that age? Adolescence going through puberty and all that voice dropping. Anywho, got to talk to your children about racism, white supremacy. Uh, uh, lots, I could say we heard about Buffalo and all the rest of it. The, the shooting situation, I guess I'll say this and then we can get to the callers. The shooting in Texas, a lot of those victims look like they would be non-white I could be totally in error. I didn't get to see birth certificates or anything, but just, you know, if if you ask me under penalty of death, you got to go through and pick out which of these folks do you think are white? Like, oh man, it looked like most of these people would not be accepted. I could be wrong, folks, if you, you know, have seen uh, images of what the victims down in Texas, what they look like, let me know. But I thought that was, you know, important. And then even the... Uh, alleged shooter Salvador Ramos I'm not sure either is he classified as white non-white have they said definitively this was a white person this was a non like I haven't heard a definitive yes this was someone who's white I heard some people saying uh, that he was a so-called immigrant and all the rest of it I mean hey you do have people who are classified as white who are immigrants so that's you know same thing with the Puerto Rican and Jewish Uh, But they said, no, he's a citizen. So I'm not sure even about the shooter, per se. Either way, uh, the response, I'm still learning. This is a shooting didn't happen that long ago, so I'm still learning. But either way, maybe folks can share their thoughts on that with the response in terms of the enforcement officers waiting all of this time before engaging. I have seen this before. Uh, They have had shooter shootings at schools. 
where the same thing happened for whatever reason they didn't engage and the carnage was allowed to be worse and uh, they talked about that changing things moving forward where they engage and get people together to try to end as he said to get yourself between those and the innocent as soon as possible cut down the casualties that I find interesting because they don't seem to have those types of problems in terms of for whatever reason there is a hesitation or reluctance to engage when it's Jonathan Crawford III, Tamir Rice, pick any number of uh, situations where the perpetrator is a black person. Hey, we know how to deal with that. I just find that I'm in an, I mean, they were saying like an hour. That is a long time to just kind of be, you know, thinking, I mean, even if you say that they're confused, like, really? You all train for all of this. That's what they say, right? You're confused for an hour? Like, what in the world? I'm not sure what to... And then, like I said, then I look at the victims like, wow, a lot of these folks look like they're not... It left me with lots to think on. I do not expect that they will make any gun changes, gun laws. We just have another shooting next week and continue, uh, especially if we have some sort of hot summer and COVID-19 comes and people are, you know, stressed and all the rest of it. This will all just continue. Uh, that said, the metaphors, whew, I could not write them all down. They were so plentiful. The report where they talked about the folks in Buffalo, allegedly, and their counter-racist work, allegedly, uh, that was just jargon and metaphors and rhetoric uh, more than I could even write down. Segre, when they talked about Buffalo, and Buffalo is the, uh, they got a list, the sixth most, I don't even know what that means the sixth most segregated and I'm sure they can explain you know in terms of how many black people got to live on the same street with white people and all the rest of it that is not the issue at all that right there is the importance of words Jim Crow because it was everywhere Jim Crow bias kept saying that in the report even talking about the the bias is towards engagement bias bias yes bias engagement that's what I'm accustomed to but incorrect words is a massive part of this problem and might even be connected to not as much reading so we don't really strengthen that part of our brain computer metaphor in terms of language and the use of words reading and writing helps with that that's my conclusion but there was some the, when they talked about Haiti they said the long and sordid history between the US and Haiti now that's just a tacky uh, cliche that people use all the time so it's not even any detail what does that even mean long and sordid history in the relationship are we dating they said uh hamstring they were talking about the Supreme Court decision where if you have ineffective counsel like many black people do you're not going to get a Johnny L. Cochran Jr. no way buddy uh, but they said this decision where hey you can't be talking about you had ineffective counsel that might have been some racial classification confusion uh, having uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas put his name as the one for this decision like see what are you talking about Razor? we got a black justice at Cowbell got a black justice here who's going to be the lead in the uh, decision here that will have these ramifications for lots and lots of black males with 
really terrible counsel. Uh, but they said, yeah, they, and they said in that uh, report, they said that we can't have all these convicts sandbagging. This is like, what does that mean? Sandbag, like you all did an Anthony Broadwater on me, deliberate metaphor, got me convicted on these goofy pseudoscientific hair fibers and racist white people making up things on me. And you can't identify a white suspect, but you can come get me. Say that I'm guilty, have me in jail for 16 years, and then I try and plead my case. Oh, you're sandbagging, sandbagging Negros. What? Correct words are important. In fact, one more. This is actually from Absolute Madness. It stuck with me from Friday. Short one. Catherine Pelinero, she writes, covering the meeting in the next day's newspaper, the Courier Express quoted Fletcher Graves, black male victim of racism, contention that the murders may have been part of a conspiracy, even a national conspiracy to kill black leaders. The first victim in this string of murders was a 14 year old black child. Now, Glenn Dunn, he might have been a genius, rocket scientist, who knows? Maybe he was already working with Al Sharpton. He was in New York State, so could be. I don't know. But I don't think a 14-year-old who's a freshman in high school qualifies as a black leader. Unless, I mean, if that is the case, well then, we were more pitiful than I thought. But that stuck with me because it's we don't now this was in 1980. So Dr. Welsing's book hadn't been published. I don't even think Mr. Fuller's book had been published at this point. So I mean, a lot less information. Urugu hadn't been published. A lot less information to work with at that time. But I mean, when you don't have a proper understanding of what you're talking about, you don't have language. This is what you end up with. We're talking about murders of a 14 year old black child three other black males at this point and this is a conspiracy to kill black leaders not this is to be expected in the system of white supremacy racism very different in terms of understanding and articulation of what is happening and you still see that it has really it has not improved this is 1980 Late 1980, when this was reported, what I just, conspiracy to kill black Lee. Imagine saying that to Trayvon Martin. Tamir Rice happens. There's a conspiracy to kill black leaders. What does that even have to do with this situation? Words are super important. That's why I say no metaphors for the broadcast. Let's work at being precise. We're not saying uh, let water rain down from a. What does that mean? that's how we talk that's how we've been talking about this problem forever it seems like there's no precision at all that's how you get scientific that's how you solve problems correctly articulating this is the problem and this is what we're trying to do to solve that problem metaphors are a great hindrance to that no precision no detail no exactness at all and they frequently transfer values of white supremacy racism consciously subconsciously i will give reminders about the metaphors uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts observations that would be grand uh folks like i said the victims if you've seen them 
do you think these, you know, mostly white people, did you see the same thing? Like, wow, it looks like this is a lot of non-white people who were victims in the Texas shooting. I think 21 fatalities, unless I misread. And then the shooter as well, Salvador Ramos. I was not sure. Did you think, is this a white person? Non-white person? Are you undecided as well? <laughs> Waiting for more information? Because that's me too. I'm, you know, still learning on that one. All this is, I guess we'll have more information, more details as it all unfolds. Uh, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. If you know you're in a noisy environment, if you could use your mute button, that would be super appreciated. Uh, let's see. First few folks dialed in with a hand up. If you have commentary to share, proceed. May I be heard? Uh, heard both of you. Uh, we'll get our caller uh, 2262 and uh, then we'll get retired firefighter as well. Uh Thank you guys for taking my call and greetings to everyone on the line. Um, <clears throat> to answer your question, Gus, about the current um, Uvalde school shooting, um, I thought about it for a while after looking at the picture of, uh, I guess, uh, Salvador Ramos, and I thought to myself he was white uh, classification. But then when I heard that he was killed by law enforcement, um, I thought I thought you know I guess he could be non-white. So I'm going to err on the side he was non-white for the fact that he was um, uh, killed by the law enforcement, not taken into custody. Um, the um, uh, report about the prom proposals. Um, I remember last year at Clark County High School. Uh, there was a, a similar um, prompt proposal done by, I suspect, a white woman. Um, the, the report about the uh, January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, um, the terms that they use to describe one of the people who are being prosecuted, um, he was child-minded and a victim of group think i don't know what no i don't know what those things mean um but i am familiar with the with the phrase um ignorant is no excuse of the law so, and um i also noted about the uh school the school shooting uvalde that they were conflating it with the taiwanese church shooting uh, in California um, and the white supremacist assault on the Topps grocery store. Um, the shooter at the uh, Taiwanese church, he was also a quote-unquote Asian. Um, and as we know, the uh, the shooter, well, as I've said, I think the shooter at, at uh, Uvalde is uh, non-white. Um the Topps grocery store, I, I'm saying, is an act of white supremacy. Um, but with that, uh, that'll be it for me, Gus. Uh, uh, thank you for taking my call, and I appreciate the cows. Mm. 
Much obliged, good sir. Hope we are worthy of your time and energy. Um, white people do kill other individuals classified as white. Uh, just like I said, I'm still learning, so you know, might be a non-white person. I don't know, but I've heard I've heard um, that metric used before. That can be the case sometimes, but they do kill white people. They executed uh, Joseph Paul Franklin. Uh, they executed the white guys who. Uh, killed James Byrd and they they've killed white people on the spot as well like uh, yeah I don't know I have to think on that one I have to think but he says non-white so we got one person said they think he's uh, non-white Salvador Ramos said and facilitate he said he thought he was non-white at first but then said they killed him I'm going to air that this is a non-white person until I see some other evidence I see the logic there uh, retired firefighter much obliged for your patience yes sir uh the I've read uh, and heard several uh, places where the killer was identified as something called a white Hispanic. I can understand the white part, but the Hispanic part, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't make any sense. And, I, and I've been around people who have been identified as such <laughs> like that for almost all of my 60 some odd years. Uh, and I don't think, I don't think that distinction came from the killer. It came from white people with that distinction, white Hispanic. Uh, also, uh, some thoughts on it, uh, as a reason why they did not go right in, uh, any one of us who probably have not never been to that, never been to the state of Texas, let alone talking about that that particular small town in Texas, could could type it up on your computer and figure out on who were, what was the racial classification of the students in that school or in that community, uh, and uh, I would say it was a part. It probably was part cowardice as well as uh, part uh, not enthused about risking one's life for a bunch of people who look like they uh, uh, crossed over into uh, Texas from Mexico a couple weeks ago. Uh, I don't think they were enthused about going going into, into mind you, mind you, uh, all of the law enforcement people that I saw had had uh, proper equipment to engage with the killer. And I'm not talking about a pistol. I'm talking about real assault weapons. The killer did not have a real assault weapon. He had a weapon that looks like an assault weapon, but a real assault weapon is the ones that come directly, the same ones that they give international uh, uh, enforcement official called our U.S. Army, Marine Corps, Navy, so on and so forth. The police get those weapons, and they have bulletproof vests. But because they, ha- I think they had an understanding, because most of those people that I saw are white white guys. Uh, uh, they they were not enthused about going in there. Uh, with the risk of their lives or based on who now, now I did look at all of the children. There was 
some of the children that would that was killed that looked like uh I would imagine those two white ladies that uh was bothering you on the beach. Uh but the majority, the overwhelming majority of those children that was in those two classrooms as well as in that school do not look like white people. And I think that played a big, they're probably never going to bring that up, you know, any, any, uh, uh, mass media controlled by white people. But those are my thoughts on, on that. Uh, speaking of, uh, the incident also, as well as the one, uh, in, uh, New York, uh, I, uh, took the challenge to do as you ask. I thought, you know, that is actually is very important to do so. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if any of the parents of the uh, kids that come to uh, the DCS program has done it, but I certainly did, along with the other some of the other uh, uh, fellows that was older fellows that that uh, share with those boys in talking about those that that, that those incidents and as far as what possibly even even to the standpoint of what possibly one can do. There were at least two children that survived that encounter from my understanding by uh, imposing split second split second uh uh decisions of rubbing the blood of their classmates on themselves and playing dead and they survived the encounter and the main thing about in surviving the encounters first of being aware of the possibility of something can happen to you. We have to start training our children on those particular those particular type of matters, especially in crowded areas or areas where there's a lot of people and school certainly falls under that bracket. And especially dealing with someone that you've never seen before in your classroom you know, or you, you, you're hearing some commotion. Uh, people have a tendency of running towards the commotion, and they need to be running away from the commotion. Uh, these are some of the things that we talked about and spent a great deal of time today into doing that with the boys. Uh, it was something else. It was something else. I should write stuff down. Uh but yeah, it, it was uh, the, the whole idea is to encourage them to ask questions. Also, uh, as as far as the film today, actually, uh, I, we just watched. Uh, I just showed them a, a half of uh, the movie that was on uh, Ernie Davis. Uh, if anyone doesn't know who Ernie Davis was, Ernie Davis was a uh, uh, football player. Well, it's more than that, but uh, what he's known for, anyway, is being a football player, uh, probably about the third or fourth black football player at the University of Syracuse. Matter of fact, Jim Brown, the great Jim Brown, helped recruit him to go to Syracuse, uh, and he ended up being the first black male to win the Heisman Trophy. Now, one of the reasons why I bought the movie because it had a lot, it had a lot of lessons in the movie that had nothing to do with football at all. It, they, for the most part, through all through the movie, was talking about racial white supremacy. 
And sometimes in order to get our children interested, you have to have some things that they're interested in <laughs> in order for them to start paying attention to it. Now you can teach. You can teach in that process. And although I don't see any football players in that in that session, uh, they, they do like football. So you it's it you know, you now they now they're there and you can, you know, show them show them a film and whatnot. Every now and then you may stop it and say, well, I, I see a lesson there. Can anybody tell me what that lesson is? You know, and, and this movie, is, it has a lot of them based on racism, white supremacy in the movie itself. Uh, we only went through half of the movie. Uh, as some of you may know, uh, uh, Mr. Davis did not live beyond his early 20s. He developed uh, leukemia and died of leukemia before he uh, even had an opportunity to play in the National Football League. Uh, but uh, that was uh, the work of today's of today. And uh, my thoughts on the uh, the uh, two different uh, uh, mass shootings. Thanks for listening. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see. Give out the number again really quick. Uh, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, before I nab the other folks who dialed in, I want to read a listener wrote in an interesting email I'll just share on the program um, but that's bravo for sharing with the young folks uh, retired firefighter that is awesome but I said that last week or I've said it several times now like got to talk about the, the Buffalo incident like that is so uh, important um, I mean the groceries everybody goes to the grocery store well you should you can't be going to McDonald's you know Chipotle every meal uh, so everybody goes to the grocery store got to talk about that got to talk to uh, your offspring check in and even as he said like hey what to do these sort of dangerous uh, situations out in public something like that happens I think that happened with the Charleston massacre in 2015 as well where I think the little five year old he had to pretend uh, to be dead uh, to survive if you're not going to be able to evacuate and even that like where are the exits maybe even see if you know you have to be in one of these places of school or what have you like let me see if I can get a seat that is as close to the exit as possible and I know where the exits are uh, so that if I have to get out of here quickly like bam 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 I know at least you know three four five different ways that I can get out of here and then if I can't as he said like man do I need to to pretend to be dead and that's what already thinking like where are the good spots you know where I can you know hide myself or what have you but just really being prepared I mean that's hey system of white supremacy racism these events and matter of fact the e oh and i'll get the email but before i get to the email just with the situation in texas any other folks if you're listening the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND we got one our first caller he said non-white or excuse me he was yes he facilitates it first he thought it was white Boom. Now he's with non-white because boom, killed him on the spot. Non-white retired fighter, retired firefighter. He says white Hispanic 
And we've heard that, you know, kookiness before, but white Hispanic, the listing that was given uh, for uh, Salvador Ramos, the accused gunman uh, in Texas uh, for a few days back. Other folks, what do you think? Is this the gunman that we're talking about here? Do we think this is a white person or non-white person uh, who, who carried out this massacre? Uh, and then even, you know, the response, how do we think about that now? That's why I said as well with the victims, from what I saw, I had the same conclusion that retired firefighter did about the uh, victims down in Texas, 21 of them. It looked like the overwhelming majority would be people who would not be accepted as white overwhelmingly, even the staff members, because I think it was at least one or two staff members in addition to all the students that were uh, murdered. Even the staff looked like they were mostly non-white people. And I did see, you know, a few folks, it was 21. I mean, it's a lot of victims, uh, a lot of fatalities. I did see some individuals who looked like they could be white, but it looked like overwhelmingly non-white people. That's the sort of thing in terms of we talk about media literacy. I would even say counter racist media literacy, understanding that we're in a system of racism, white supremacy. Obviously, from what we heard in the reports, frequently racism is flagrantly talked about incorrectly, not correct terms and all that segregation and all that. But often now you get something like that where they didn't really mention racism, white supremacy. We don't know about the racial classification of the shooter, the victims. But I mean, is that what could have happened here because I was thinking that but I said man I'm not sure I need to ask talk to some other folks and see what they think do we think it could have I totally ignore he said cowardice we've heard that before I've heard that from uh, investors Kamisha M. Africa other folks who uh, have worked in the service where they said situations where lives are on the line the adrenaline is rolling there is a threat you got to get that firearm or whatever it is and get to it where they have seen a lot of individuals classified as white where they punk out for lack of a better term or <laughs> whatever happens and uh, cowardice. They are not all rough and tough and let's go do it and rah, 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 and you know, I'm a beacon of courage. No, I've heard we've heard that from a number guests, listeners, investors. So cowardice. And I think one of the officers did get shot, not fatally, but in, you know, the whole exchange or what have you. But I think that did happen. But he thinks that could have been part of what was in this delay and them not going in to shoot. And then he said, hey, maybe they saw the same thing that at least retired firefighter and I did. That looks like this is a lot of non-white victims. And he said, hey, you look at the demographics for this area. And I think I've seen that in reports as well. A lot of non-white people. Maybe they, as he said, border jumper, rapist. That's what our former president said. Uh, illegal aliens and all the rest of it. We should have put that wall up, made them pay for it. I'm not risking my life going here, save these. Let me sit out here and think about it. I'm going to have to take five minutes. I'll take another 50. Now, I said, man, I don't know. Maybe. I had to think about it because sometimes I'm, you know, kind of reluctant to be like, man, do you think that could have happened? Yeah something upon if other folks if you you know seen the victims have a thought and or the perpetrator if you have a thought let us know but man do we think that could have been also a part racism white supremacy how somebody says they don't care about children that idiot does say that but i mean woof do we think that could have factored in that these lives are a little less valuable because they are non-white children a lot of them like ooh. let me get the listener email then we'll get thoughts from other folks as well the email they wrote in 
so this is about the Buffalo shooting. Uh, hi, Gus. These shootings have me so aware. I guess both the Buffalo mass shooting for in the faces of those victims. I saw people who could have easily been my loved ones. I am positive. I'm not alone. Absolutely. As I listen to the archives, I know the goal is justice. I feel the cows uh, certainly gives great advice on establishing a code and to attempt to navigate this life as a black person, non-white person, victim of racism as seamlessly as we possibly can each day. That attempt becomes even more difficult. My question to you and perhaps any listeners is what does justice look like? Meaning I know what justice is, but how do we try to obtain this justice through politics? Question. I have not seen that work, but if there is something black individuals can do to attempt to gain some semblance of justice in that manner, I would like to know more. Example, white young murderers walk away and might even get Burger King. The young man who shot the school children appeared not white. We got two not white, even though not black, but he was murdered on the spot the same way a black gunman would have been killed. But white murderers usually walk away no matter how horrendous their act was. Not always. So do we attempt to get some form of justice through politics as it pertains to our law enforcement? Again, I don't see that being the answer, but do you feel that attempt would be useful? Clearly, that will not end white supremacy racism, but I'm just looking for some answers and goals that we can attempt to achieve to one day have justice, even if I am dead and gone. You might not have the answer, but do we? how do we attempt to gain justice? Clearly, knowledge is power and learning ways to deal with white people in the most constructive ways are extremely helpful. But I was just wondering, how do we attempt to gain justice? If you have addressed this in a previous program, please share. Anyway, on another note, I do have a workplace racism story to share and will try to call in. If I can't call in, I will email. Much obliged. Reading B, female victim. That right there is a, a big one in terms of reading. Uh, but in terms of what do we do to achieve justice? If you mean politics in terms of like uh, formal politics, professional politics, like voting, uh, running for office, getting some sort of pack or what have you. I also have concluded that that's you're not going to vote racism out or run for office or anything like that. Uh, I have concluded that as it presently stands, I think Dr. Well, she said this on our program, many others. Uh, the problem, Mr. Fuller would seem to agree as well, because page one is if you don't understand racism, white supremacy, everything else will confuse you that none of our attempts are very effective because we do not understand racism, white supremacy. And it's most flagrantly demonstrated in how we speak about this problem. It is so just rife with imprecision, rhetoric, cliches, metaphors. There is no precision, accuracy at all, much less a logical, let's try to do this. Let's try to do that. So I would say starting with getting an understanding of what it means to be white. I mean, hey, how are we going to try to do anything? Political vote otherwise. They said uh, the fella Peyton Gendron, he hung out with a black stranger for an hour. Black fella gave him his, uh, his keys. Mr. Lewis Grady, if I remember his name correctly, gave him his keys and everything because he had his uh, plus card on his key on his key. The, you know, the discount card they have at the grocery stores. You can get your, uh, you know, discounted. Way. And they said Tops is, is a terrible grocery store. We heard that today. They said that's not even a good grocery store. It's like a, a big 7-Eleven. So you can go get your high fructose corn syrup and Funyuns. And then he came out and, and chatted it up with him for an hour. 
we are confused about what it means to be white. That's the whole purpose of, you know, the cows try to get us a better understanding of racism, white supremacy. But uh, how I would say studying so that you yourself are better informed, uh, even with the Buffalo situation that she's saying that she's upset about. These situations are going to continue to happen. If you mean justice in an individual sense in this case or what have you, understanding this is supposed to happen in a system of white supremacy racism might even be more of these incidents. If you have increasing numbers of white people who are concerned about their population numbers, increasing numbers of non-white people, since even the folks at the rural schools, right? They were saying that too. So understanding that's why this is happening. There are probably going to be more of these events until we solve this problem. And then trying to get as many other non-white people informed about racism, white supremacy, and just making sure that we are all on our assignment as best we can, on our duty as best we can. That's what Leah Hamilton said. Uh, That's one thing as well, I would say, because we're so confused, the vast majority of non-white people, we are not on our assignment. That's why it's also, it is so hard to try to get this problem addressed. Uh, Racists, they do such a tremendous job keeping us distracted, confused, not focused, uh, focused on every and anything else except replacing white supremacy with justice and even understanding what that is and why that has to be the number one priority, number one problem to get solved. So hopefully that's not just uh, the metaphor buckets of words. Hopefully that some specifics, as I said, you individually, all of us working as best we can individually to better understand the system and figuring our own individual codes for our own conduct, safety, counter racist objectives, and then trying to share information with other non-white people modeling that behavior, right? So we're not going and reading Mr. Fuller and Yurugu and all the rest of it to then go out and call black people coons and all the rest of it, like modeling black self-respect and a counter racist approach and how you uh, talk to conduct yourself with other individuals who are not white victims of racism. And they're trying to share as much constructive information as possible uh, to minimize confusion amongst the victims of racism. I think that's what that process looks like. Non-white people becoming more serious, uh, more informed uh, and more focused uh, about addressing this problem uh, and the way that we talk about it becoming more precise, more logical, less rhetoric and cliches, but specifics sounding as though we are becoming counter racist scientists. Hopefully that addresses uh, your question. Much obliged until justice at gmail.com. If other folks want to respond to that and or folks have thoughts about the shooting uh, other folks, if you have a hand up, if we missed you totally uh, proceed. folks are getting their thoughts together uh, again we will be here on Monday so the book club is Thursday Catherine Palinero absolute madness that'll be Thursday 8 p.m. Uh, Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific but Monday so called Memorial Day so if you are someplace where it is warm weather and the pool is opening and all that I remember those days when May used to mean warm weather you go outside and get in the pool and all that that is not Seattle weather at all haven't even dropped my winter gear. Most other people haven't either. Uh, but if you are, you know, out at the doing the the barbecue and grilling it up and all that, 
grand. Uh, you can listen. We will be here 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific uh, for so-called Memorial Day. Matt Greider, white man, will be discussing uh, Joseph, his book on uh, Joseph Christopher Joey 22. It is amazing. We will be sure to see what he, how he compares these two and get his thought. Maybe he's seen it. You know, have they mentioned Mr. Christopher even to get his thoughts as to why there has been no mention of this case at all and all of the supporting material and everything else. Why no mention of this case that started at an East Buffalo Tops grocery store. Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Pacific and we should hopefully even have some other white people from the Buffalo area on the program uh, to talk about the history of white supremacy racism uh, in that area and why does it have this reputation like man we are always on the list top 10 most segregated Jim Crow cities hopefully we'll have even more so we can do our diligence uh, about this most recent white terrorist attack of our times until the next one uh, let's see. Uh, all the other folks that uh, have a hand up. Can I uh, be heard? Our caller in Ohio. Yes, sir. Uh, Gus, I'll start out on a serious note here. Uh, one of the things that I keep on hearing people say is why the police were standing around. <clears throat> well, a lot of people probably don't know that there's been quite a few rulings about uh, police intervention, even when a crime is occurring. A 1989 decision on a case called DeShaney v. Winebago County, pretty much, a lady had a restraining order on her husband. Um, he violated restraining order. She calls law enforcement. The husband, I guess in some way, shape, or form, was able to get his three daughters, and he took them to some amusement park in Denver, End of the day, the guy kills his daughters, ends up getting in a shootout with the police and dies. And so the lady um, tried to sue the, the county and the city. And uh, the Supreme Court states that uh, the police and pretty much any governmental agency do not have a constitutional duty to protect someone. So those officers standing outside the classroom... As much as it's distasteful and you might say cowardice and more than likely they're just practicing white supremacy, uh, they, in terms of constitutionally speaking, the courts have decided multiple times, by the way, that they don't have a duty to protect people. So they have the discretion to decide when they protect persons and not protect persons. So they're not constitutionally uh, you know, held to have to intervene to stop a crime, no matter how heinous it is. Uh, the case is from 1989. There's ones that recently happened. Uh, one is, a, I guess, a school shooting where um, at a Majory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, I guess some of the students tried to sue um, the government, their government there, and I believe law enforcement for not intervening, and the judges said a similar thing. There is no constitutional duty to protect people the only time they might have a constitutional duty to protect a person is if they are arrested meaning you aren't freely able to go so pretty much supposedly i mean if you talk to the, the people who have been in prison or jail 
they'll tell you they don't even protect you there. But uh, from a constitutional standpoint, that's the only time that uh, law enforcement has a duty to protect you. So I figured I'd just put that out there. Um, people could do the research themselves. I went and pulled up the legal aspects of it because I can understand why people would make the uh, argument about, you know, you got 19 officers standing outside a classroom, but legitimately the Constitution that everybody pines away about, the Constitution says nowhere in there that they have to legally protect you. Um, in terms of the guy who was uh, shooting the school up, I, I'm going to err on the side that he is white adjacent. I know that word people might find tacky, but here's why I say that. Uh, an individual that I met about five, six years ago, uh, he's from Mexico. He actually immigrated to America, and he's married to a white woman. Uh, he looks probably similar to some of the uh, those students, the darker-skinned students who were uh, murdered by the guy. But uh, anywho, in a conversation with him and his wife, he was telling me when he got into his immigration papers done, like the government told him he had to file as white. That's how he was. Because he's, I guess, one of those Hispanics that come from the some of the black, I guess, ancestry in Mexico, for lack of a better way of expressing it. So in his view, he views himself as black because that's how, I guess, he's classified down in Mexico with his people. But when he came to America, he told me, they let him know, like, no, you classified as white. And that was directly from his mouth. So... Could he be lying to me? Possibly, but I'm not operating off hearsay. That was actually somebody who I knew and had a, you know, reputable relationship with where we had that conversation. So in my opinion, the guy at best, I mean, he's white adjacent, honorary white. Um, and the last thing I'll say, Gus, is, man, Gus, you, you were living the uh, confused, every confused black male's dream. I mean, you're at the beach and, and two young white women come up playing Bob Marley, and I mean, they're just jamming out, and, you know, they're over there near your space where you can, you know, maybe shoot some game at them, put your macking down on them, and, and you chase them away? Oh, Lord, Gus, you better, you better watch out saying that to too many black guys out here that that still confused about how racism works, because they might, you know, they might think you're gay or something, or, or a coon or something like that. I mean, you turn out some, some white drawers? I mean, because that's what them two white girls are trying to do. And with that, I'll pause my mic. Worthless Negro from Virginia already thought of as a coon. So, you know, that should just be another story uh, to add to the mix. Uh, anywho, um, so we got uh, one non much obliged our call in Ohio. So we got one non white. We got one white Hispanic and one uh, white adjacent, quote unquote. Mr. Fuller does recommend that we avoid using the term uh, honorary white. Either you are white or you are not. There's no in-betweens and all this other stuff. Either you are white or you are not uh, racist. They love all that confusion and they can do things like that because they just make it up as they go uh, as he's a so-called black ancestry all of this is just total nonsense they just make it up as they go so they can say oh yeah you're in this part of the world 
Well, you might be a Negro. You come to this part of the world. Well, now we're going to say that you're white. In fact, he said that they told him you had better file as white. Like it's not an option. That's what you put on that form and then make sure that he does it. And I've heard that sort of thing, you know, before. But hey, who is making that decision? That's not Dick Gregory. That's not Louis Farrakhan. That's not President Obama, Michelle Obama. I didn't even ask them, you know, an opinion on the matter. And as a matter of fact, we talked about this with Daniel uh, Livesey. He was a guest on the program uh, Tuesday. We had that irregular time uh, where a lot of folks missed it or at least missed it live. Uh, but he was talking about in Jamaica, they would do the same thing. They would have the uh, white slave owners raping non-white people, producing offspring with them. And so then sometimes they take those offspring and they say, hey, uh, we'll say that you're white. Or if you marry a white, and they even had this, I read, read this in the Protestant archives. If you marry a white person, produce children with a white person, hey, you can get white status and then certainly your children good to go but now you do some messing around besides you you know want to get you a little hussy negro no inheritance for you and all this other stuff to encourage that there will be a how'd be right he said a biological identification with individuals classified as white so that seems like they had that codified for a long time but the main thing remembering who is in charge of those classifications? Extra, super important. And we just talked about Daniel Livesey. We just talked about that uh, in totally different context to us. It is global because he said Mexico, Jamaica, global system, known universe, super important. Racial classifications is uh, a huge component. Um, yeah, let's see. Uh, folk, folks that we missed totally. Other folks who got a hand up that we missed totally. Hey Gus, can I just say that he's white then? Because that's that's if, since we can't say honorary white, I'll just say then white. So if he's white or non-white, I'm saying white. Now I'll pause my mic again. Hmm. Much obliged, much obliged. Now we have a white, white Hispanic, non-white uh, for Salvador Ramos. Uh, our caller in Florida, yes sir. Yes sir, thank you very much, sir. Greetings to. That's the host, the listeners and callers. Um, when I saw the reports, I thought the shooter uh, looks like he would be classified as non-white, in my opinion. And most of the victims uh, look like they would be classified as non-white, or I'll just say that they are non-white and the shooters non-white, in my opinion. Um, and it, it was interesting how it looks like the child that just to add this, like the way they had the pictures position is like they wanted you to look at the child that's, uh, classified as white. Um, I wanted to point that out as well. Uh, as far as the audio segment, the segment with, I think that was the prime proposal. Like, that's another thing that I think about is how they have, especially like with this generation, I know it's been 
around prior at prior times, prior generations, to use that word, where the image and the word combination take my breath away, I think that's what was said. And using the victim George Floyd's image and emojis and stuff now that these younger people have now and how they are able to uh utilize that to practice racism. Uh, I'm really trying to also study that as well with reading to gain the better understanding of the system and how white people practice racism. Uh, the the way that I think they said, I don't know if that was the same segment, but like you mentioned, like how it's a code to how they respond. Like, well, you know, we're trying to do something about it. And the the general response is that nothing tangible is done about the racism that's practiced uh, in the segment where I think that white woman was being interviewed about white supremacy and in a community or in a neighborhood. And she was asked or maybe she was responding about how I guess white people in that area would feel about white supremacy being brought up. And I guess the majority of them, were uncomfortable, I guess, about it being mentioned like that. I guess they were being so direct. And maybe she said that, or she said, I think she said that she had four offspring to, uh, I guess, contribute to that idea, ideology. And then if she tried it, it seemed to me like she made it seem like, oh, well, this is, hey, this seems like this is about hate or hating black people. Like she isn't a contributor. You had, you, you're reproducing more white people. You still contribute to the system. You still are practicing racism. And like, it seemed to me like they wanted to put that focus, doing that focal point. And again, where this is the example of a, a white supremacist, they're doing this over there and I'm just I'm out of it now you know I've she didn't say this but outgrown or I'm somebody else now that's how that's how it came off to me Um, and that can be confusing as well to uh, black people or non-white people who haven't developed a certain understanding so I I think she was practicing racism with that because she still is able to practice racism just in saying that. And then, you know, they'll say one thing and they contradict themselves. And just with the language alone, they can be uh, skilled in being racist. Um, I had two reports from my area. The first one, it was about four, four white males. Now, they're under 20. Two of the four were out on bond for manslaughter, killing somebody. And they were pulled over, uh, and they had rifles, and this is about guns again. And they were labeled as juveniles. So two of these white uh, kids, uh, you know, white males, were already in jail, facing charges. And then they got pulled over again and arrested for what they call a drive-by shooting. 
So that's another one of those um, examples of how uh, white power is used. And my last one is there's a school called PK, right? PK Young. And they would see they had the non-white reporter. And he was out there at the stadium where they was uh, about to have this graduation ceremony. And these <laughs> these white these these white students, they did a food fight. You know, now I did see a black kid in the uh the video as well, but the people they were interviewing were white. And they and I think they knew they were white. Just on how they were talking like they were just kinda nonchalant. Yeah, I knew they was gonna allow us to graduate, but I just thought it was unfair. They didn't have us attend the prom. Hey, we cleaned up the whole cafeteria. Like, I just thought that was unfair. They kept using that word. Uh, and it was two signs that were holding up. And one said that, you know, we survived the pandemic for two years. Don't let our graduation end with the food fight. And then another one said, food, not fists. So using words again, making it seem like it's not a big deal because they had a food fight uh, because apparently they were going to be told that they couldn't walk or go to the prom or whatever. So uh, that was some local news and that's all I have to share. Thank you. I love it. I love it. Not going to ruin our future. Toss a French fry around the cafeteria. What's wrong with you? <laughs> Come on. Come on. <laughs> that word fair man, that's what I mean about words I think the more informed that you become about white supremacy racism and particularly the significance of language white as he was saying about the emojis and, and, and words and play on because they do so much of that remember the racist joke where the guy got thrown off the jury uh, where he said uh, "What? why do they have to shoot the black people or I forgot how it was something to the effect of why do they have to shoot him so many times and it was because the Blakes have tough skin BLA it was uh, Mr. Blake was shot and killed in Wisconsin instead of blacks have tough skin it's Blakes have to see there's so much of that it's so much of that uh, in the system of racism white supremacy and it's uh, not just English but that's you know another conversation but yes lots to study um, and just in those words and everything and the word fair we've been treated unfairly even at a young age like they know that he said you can kind of tell in their posture like you know we're white we, that's what you do to niggers you know you kick old Trayvon out of school say he was throwing a hot dog around could have killed somebody and raped someone with a hot dog yeah that's that's what you do to old Trayvon and you know Brianna that's what you do to the niggers well look at it come come he say, what do you say? Uh, food, not fists. We survived the Rona. Really? <laughs> like, are you serious? And I have seen that like my entire life. And it'll be like, and I mean, food, you can even part like, they talk about food insecurity. We had that report where they're talking about people who are hurting so bad, especially non-white people even though they didn't say that they went to old rural whites in Appalachia and all the rest of it white sacrifice uh, but you got people that got to go to dollar store family dollar to eat there is nothing that's why I play that Harriet reading more important than watching television Harriet A. Washington 
no eating at the dollar store. Uh, and they didn't even say that in the uh, in NPR report. Like, oh yeah, by the way, they have a lot of unregulated goods. Might be some better options, healthier options as opposed to going to uh, the Dollar General or Family Dollar, whatever to eat. But you got people doing that, and they're having a food fight, wasting food for violence. <laughs> like, come on, that's theme in white violence. Can't even just send them. Eat. We got to be violent. Ah, whack you with a hamburger. Ah. They've been having food shortages, right? Got baby food, uh, baby formula shortages and all that other stuff. Food disruptions for COVID-19. Ah. What does it mean to be white? And like I said, I've seen that my whole life. I remember they had a really strict policy. There were they it was a long list that they rolled out of infractions. If you do this and you do this and you do this, uh, you will not graduate and ring 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 all the rest of it. And I mean just boy you we're not playing and it's not gonna be any uh and so liquor was one of them. They were very explicit. Like that means you come to school and you, you know, got a six pack or malt liquor or whatever it is, tequila, whatever. Uh, it's in your locker or your backpack, whatever it is. Like, psh, you are not walking and rah, 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 all the rest of it. Like, all right. And then any sort, if it's a field trip, lots of you got those. Some sort of field trip, football game, bat, whatever it is. Same thing, a school activity. Psh, like, all right, all right. Good. And there were so many <laughs> people who got in trouble and suspended or whatever. And blah, 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 blah. They had. Uh, some white group or predominantly white it might have been all white activity they did something and of course I mean who does more underage drinking uh, and so got caught that's on the list they I mean t- shook their finger in our face and everything graduated went right on like hey wasn't that on the list like you get they said it was 180 days that was what it was you're not gonna graduate and it's a 180 day suspension you won't be back and it'll ruin your future I mean boy they let you 180 like oh my god can you admit uh, now now I'm looking back on that now like what in the Christ like 180 what is that for like you'd have to kill somebody or rape somebody and kill them for like what even for like are you serious and of course they're not serious because these white people like I said they did not get a 180 day suspension they were not in school but they got some sort of uh, compensatory program graduated on time went off to college and away we go they did not do that for many many of my black classmates uh, throughout no surprise uh, let's see oh we got another tally he said he thought the shooter was non-white in Texas so we got two non-white white Hispanic white for the shooter I guess you can write in until justice at gmail.com uh, if folks think I thought that was so fascinating his commentary on uh, the segment in Buffalo right we had the white woman have to go get her uh, name I was looking to really see maybe we can get her as a guest on the program but she's talking about you know having all these children and then one day miraculously I think this is hate. I've been producing all these little white people just for white support. So much <laughs> white genetic annihilation. Yeah, I've been hate. Yeah, I'm gonna 
go out here and, and I mean you want to talk about rhetoric that was the one where I said it's rhetoric nonsense like at, show up and be here you white people on the sideline where is the sideline like shut up I don't need to hear anything else if there is a sideline just put all the niggers on the sideline right now if we could just get and sit and observe maybe I could take a series off isn't that what Tom Brady do let me just take a series off so I can you know get my bearings and then get back to it what does that and see that's another one because see matter of fact let me shut up a listener emailed me I take these as challenges my little counter racist self challenges see how much of a counter racist grind are you on if a listener sends you a report on racism white supremacy you should have already seen this this one I want. She sent me this one. I'd already seen this. Until justice at gmail.com. I like winning most of this, especially NPR. Like, pfft, should crush those. Like, 95% of those. Like, NPR, I check that every day. So, I mean, that should be impossible uh, for Gusty to miss something from NPR, which I did not uh, on this one. Anyway, and I even chuckled because I had already, like, positioned where I wanted this segment in the sound clip when I got this email. So, I slam dunked this one. Metaphor. She wrote it about the segment that he just talked about. She said, Greetings, Gus. You may have listened to these news reports already, of course, but just passing them along. In the fight against white nationalism, white people are key. This piece reminded me a lot of what Mr. Fuller talks about in terms of racism being constantly refined, as well as the fact that racists play both sides in this piece. I think that what racists are trying to sell, but I am not buying, is that non-white metaphor. White people should think of only certain types of white people as being racist versus at minimal suspecting all of them all of them that qualify to be racist, all of them qualified to be racist, to be just that racist. I had some other thoughts on this piece, but I will leave it there. Uh, again, Gusty has recommended uh, for years now that we stop saying that we, you know, the suspense. <laughs> anyway, VGQ, what does it mean to be white? Uh, but that was the same sentiment our caller in Florida was discussing same sentiment that racial narrowing uh, even with even within all of that insanity uh, that she's ignorant and she had all these children and she didn't know about it if there are white people who are sitting on the sidelines that suggests that they are not in the game one that's the game too we're not talking about a game we're talking about terrorism global system but that suggests there are some white people they are not in the game that non-white people who are confused I mean that easily is oh I guess they're ignorant or they don't know what's going on or they're not participating in all of this that is not possible now if there's a sideline so called in all of this let me know just put the niggers on the sideline and figure it all out. We'll come back on the field when there is justice. But that doesn't matter. See, that's what, and it was just tons of that, all that rhetoric. And when you don't really understand racism, white supremacy, when you don't understand the importance of words, that's why I said it's not gusty hating metaphor. That's not it at all. <laughs> this is the basics, in my view, fundamentals of being an attempted counter-racist scientist paying attention to words and I have concluded hey these metaphors oh my goodness when you just listen 
Listen, when people, this is what you're going to get. Not even like half, this is what you're going to get like 10 times out of nine. I'm like, it is stunning when you have someone who is not just metaphor and simile and rhetoric and right. And we brag about this stuff. That's not, we'll just have this forever. You have to get specifics and very detailed about what we're talking about and what we're trying to do to counter all of this. This is not segregation and Jim Crow and sideline and oh my God. I mean, it could be really terrible. What is that? The quote that I read at the beginning, 14 year old, first victim in all this, a 14 year old black child. And the response is a national conspiracy to kill black leaders. Words are very important. But yeah, that Buffalo segment was, and that's on NPR. Like nobody vets this. <laughs> so this will be like, what are they even talking about? And that's another one. You're going to come on and tell me that you grew up in Western New York. No, Joseph G. Christopher. I told you, you don't have to tell me about what that. You can give the whole history of Klan activity in New York. Henry in Chicago mailed a whole report. Put it in that context. You can even bring up uh, the Niagara movement, how that relates to the NAACP and all the rest of it. But I mean, put it in total context so we understand the history of so-called segregation in Buffalo. Matt Greider, Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. But they didn't do that. Just give some nonsense. And then the war and all of that confused non-white people would think, oh, that's an ally. There are folks up in Buffalo who get it. They're, out here, they're going out here and they're talking to other white people. Online. If anything, what they could have amplified in that segment when they said they went out and talked to white people and they said they weren't comfortable. What do you mean you're not comfortable? Like the, this is a terrorist organization. Like, what do you mean? Or they said some of them were conflicted. Like, we don't like all these non-white people. I don't know. Or they didn't want to talk about it at all. Like, imagine... Man, Imagine this one the other way. So imagine if there was a black person not effing around if that organization was in your neighborhood and they were going out, you know, leaving literature, talking about they wanted to, you know, harm white people and all this, blah, 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 blah. Do you think black people would be like, eh, I don't know. I kind of dig not effing around. They, they Their sentiment kind of speaks to me. I'm conflicted about, you know what I'm saying? Like, man... The way that I have heard, you can look throughout history. The Black Panther Party, I think there are lots of examples. Like, no, that would be not be the dynamic at all. I mean, at bare minimum, these are criminals. Why are we harboring criminals? That's the same thing that we heard with Joseph G. Christopher, where you had white witnesses who were reluctant to turn him in. Like, what do you mean? This is a crease killing children. The Klan, they did the same thing, killing children. I don't know. I don't like all these. The same thing that Joseph Chris. They didn't even mention Joseph Chris. That's what I mean. Total. That's not an accident. I hope. Oh, my goodness. Oh, hopefully we can get them on the program. Ask them now. Do you know Joseph Christopher? Hmm. You remember when the Klan was posting the, the notices way back then saying, get your coon hunting license? nonsense man nonsense much obliged our caller uh and not nonsense but refinement of white supremacy racism anyway other folks comments that they want to make sure they get in uh any oh we did our three i didn't even realize it never mind monday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific matt greider 
Joey 22 white man, white journalist who covered Joseph Christopher at the time. So looking forward to having him on the pro. In fact, he mentions Arthur McDuffie in his book, Miami Connection right there. Much obliged for everyone who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, invest if you think the program is constructive. Visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. You'll see the links for Cash App, Venmo, uh, and PayPal. Uh, cash App, Cash dot App forward slash dollar sign the cows. Much obliged to all of the investors over the years. Hope we remain worthy of your time and energy. That's it. Uh, creator, what, 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 holiday weekend, man, oh man, Woo. sobriety would be best. It's better, well, folks in the states, I guess elsewhere, you know, normal would apply, but for people in the states. So-called holiday weekend sobriety would be best. Use your extra time constructively if you know that applies. Uh, if you are out and about, remember that it is a holiday weekend, so you might have—I don't know—that could mean fireworks, and you know, some places they gotta go and let off a few rounds of ammunition to to mark the occasion, since this is a war holiday, and all the way the alcohol, oh, the alcohol and narcotics. Like, be mindful. Might even be one that you want to avoid big crowds and all of that since people's conduct has been so, you know, dangerous of late. Definitely be alert if you're going to go and maybe have that talk about exit strategies, what to do if, you know, things should get dangerous, what signals to look for if it looks like it could be heading in that direction and then you can go ahead and exit beforehand. That's even better. Sobriety would be best. Uh, If you are in a vehicle, you are sober, buckled up and you are not on a cell phone uh just for sure for this weekend doing the small things to minimize contact with race soldiers badge or no all of that said creator we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling, no gossiping, no reckless production of offspring you heard what will be waiting for them their prom invite cow signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim no brother problem. you're a victim uh, i'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm-hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned uh.